Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of Faith Unaltered. I'm your host, David Russell, and I'm here with my awesome co-host, Tyler Fowler. What is up, buddy? What it do, David? How are you doing tonight, my friend? I'm good, buddy. I'm good. Yeah, I'm excited. We are having a debate. We haven't had one of these in a while, and I am super stoked to be. I'm honored to moderate this debate uh, with our good friends, Del Glover and Jordan from Reasons to Doubt. And so, guys, I am super excited to have you all here with us. We are debating, like I said tonight. Um, and so what we're going to do is Dell is going to go first. He's going to give a 15-minute opening statement affirming the Shroud of Torin. Jordan has taken the negative, and he will give a 15-minute opening statement. After that, we will jump in to an informal type of dialogue setting where you, the audience, can ask questions if you so choose. Now, check this out. We are doing something new tonight, and I'm just super, super proud and super excited to announce that we have hit a 1,000 subscribers. We hit our goal, and now Ooh. we're... Yeah, right. I need I I told David uh before uh we went on air is we need like little sound effects, like a a real radio show, you know. And so I want to work on getting some sound effects going on. But anyway, we have hit a thousand subscribers, so thank you all so much. Um we, we couldn't do it without you guys. And and so we love our listeners and we thank you all uh for that. And so we're doing something new tonight. We are going to be uh, taking our first super chats. And so this is something that you can only, uh, that's only accessible once a channel hits a thousand subs. And so if you would like to be our first super chat and you have a question that has anything to do with the Shroud of Torn, please feel free to do that and, and ask that question. Super chats will take priority so they don't get lost in the mix of all the other questions uh they will take priority we will try to get to them as soon as they're asked if not we don't want to interrupt our guests tonight and so what we will do is if we do get a super chat and they are in the middle of uh, a conversation they're say they're saying something we will get to that super chat immediately after uh, that transition and so that you will be the first uh, to get your question asked and so with that being said david is there anything that you would like to say before we introduce our guests and debaters tonight yeah man you know i'm excited too uh, you know i've known jordan for a long time and dale and you know yeah. it's just good to have them here because they're both super reasonable guys you know i mean They've been on the show. If you don't know who they are, you don't know their podcast, then guess what? You haven't been listening to the show. I always yeah. say that. Um, but yeah, I mean, these guys are great. And there's nobody that I would like to listen to debate this than these two guys. These guys are very knowledgeable mm. on whatever they talk about. I remember one of the first uh, reasons to doubt I got to listen to was on the vaccinations. And I was just, Jordan had me rolling the whole time. <laughs> it was pretty good. And then Dale, of course, you know, we went against date uh, trying to figure out hell and, and all this stuff. And that was fun. And we, we formed a bond and we've been uh, hanging out ever since, you know, through email and whatever, even though you're in Canada and you drink uh, milk from bags. But uh, <laughs> also guys, if there's anything in the super chats about our guests, you want to know uh, as long as it's not personal, I mean, I'm, more thinking about the bow tie and the and the glasses you know so yeah. if you want to ask them about their uh why dale wears his sunglasses at night and jordan 
just prancing around with a bow tie, then ask him that too. You can super chat that as well. Already answered that though. I think your audience. You have, you have, but you know what? If it's a super chat, then we'll get to it first. <laughs> yeah, we'll do it. I don't care. Uh, but no, seriously, guys. You know, like I said, I'm honored <laughs> to be here. I've had a great week, yeah. except for you. Remember when you were with us, Tyler, in in uh, uh in the summer, and we had that engine mis misfire on. Uh, yes. Now yes. there's coil one. Fire no! be last Ditch week. it. Ditch <laughs> the van. Yeah. And get a new one, bro. Scrap oh, it, buy man. a new We're one. Works. We're in the okay. works. But anyway, yeah, that's all I got to say, guys. Is it's an honor to be here, and and you know, it's it's good to hear you guys and see you guys. Absolutely. I'm so I I just want to say this. So Dell and Teddy Pappas has convinced me of the shroud. I was a shroud skeptic for the longest time, and listening to Dell's Real Seeker channel. If you have not subscribed to that, you need to go do that after this episode. Um, go subscribe to Real Seekers. But I was listening. We interviewed Dell on the Shroud uh, on on I think it was either CSG or Pora. I was a guest on uh, whenever David was doing Pora, and I was blown away. And so that really compelled me to research this topic a little bit deeper. And y'all know how I am whenever I research. Like that is front and foremost, right for me. And so then we brought on Teddy, um, who's a good friend of Dell. She's a good friend of ours as well. And it, actually, she was on the show uh, last week uh, whenever we were talking about icons in Eastern Orthodoxy. Great show. If you haven't checked that out, go look at it. Uh, but but just listening to her on this subject, she is a shroud specialist. And I was just I was blown away by it. And so lining up all the evidence, I was convinced uh, that the Shroud of Torin is legit. It's real. It's not a forgery by any stretch of the imagination. And so I'm really, really excited. So Jordan, you've got your work cut out for you tonight. Convince me I'm wrong. No, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just like, but guys, I will go ahead and let our guests introduce themselves. And so since Dale has the affirmative, he will be going first. Dale, you've got the mic, brother. Okay. Uh, so this is just introducing who I am kind of thing. Yes. Okay, so so yeah, I'm I'm Dale from uh, Real Seekers. Um, so yeah, basically I started out. I was the co-host of a podcast called Skeptics and Seekers. So that was kind of a weekly podcast where there's an atheist uh, host, and then there's me representing the Christian, and we would debate uh, various topics related to theology and philosophy of religion and that sort of thing. Um, from there, I went to Real Seekers as just the solo host and. Yeah, I do all sorts of things. I have various guests on, you know, people like Gary Habermas, who's on uh, David's show as well, uh, Mike Lacona, Lydia McGrew, stuff like that. I also do my own solo shows. So, you know, things like the existence of God, uh, the cosmological argument, or the hiddenness of God argument, uh, for atheism, sorry. Um, and obviously, relevant to tonight, I have my Shroud Wars series, which is where I'm going over all the evidence uh, for the evidence for the shroud for and against it and bringing on experts to talk about that. Right on brother. Right on. And Jordan, before we get to you, I do want to clarify. So I saw a question in our uh, audience uh, in, in our chat. And so, yes, a super chat is basically a way to donate to the show, a way to fund the show. And so you can put a donation anywhere from up to, I think, I think the minimum is a dollar you have to put in. I could be wrong on that guys. Correct me if I am. Um, but I think the minimum is a dollar and you can donate. I mean, I've seen people donate a hundred uh, before. Yeah, go ahead. One thing, just because this yeah. is going live on Real Seekers yes. and Faith Unaltered. So I, I don't have a thousand subscribers, so people couldn't donate to you through my channel. They'd have I, to be your... 
I think that's correct. I don't think the option would be available for them on the Real Seekers, but if you hop on over to Faith and Altered, you can do that. Um, so yes, I thank you for uh, saying that, Dell. And so that, is, like I said, it's just a way to fund the show, um, and and we would get those uh, donations to help us with equipment and and advertisement and things of that nature. So if you'd like to help fund the show, super chats are the way to go. Also, if you would like to donate to us uh, without super chatting, email me at faithunaltered at gmail.com and I will get you a link to be able to help us with that process. And so, Jordan, without further ado, brother, the mic is yours. Introduce yourself. And where do you, obviously you're taking the negative position tonight? Give us a little background of how you came to start investigating the shroud and what led you really up to this point. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Jordan. I am an atheist, by which I mean I believe no gods exist. I run uh, the Reason to Doubt uh, YouTube channel slash podcast with a friend of mine named Jared. He is a uh, theologian, or at least he has a he went to seminary, and we're both atheists now. Uh, so I'm a skeptic, first and foremost, and so we, you know, our channel is focused on debunking things. And in the course of that, uh, the Shroud of Turin kind of came up. There was a video that Jared saw, and uh we were like honestly we were a little overwhelmed in terms of like work at the time so we're like you know what we'll do we'll kind of pull the curtain back and we'll just like do a live riff on this thing we'll oh, just wow. you know kind of kind of show people what the thought process is when we're seeing a claim right yeah. just yeah and, th and we'll just talk about the things we would investigate further and we did that and it was for our, the scale of our channel super popular for reasons i can't understand but for whatever yeah. reason it was yeah. uh and we promised at some point in the future to do a deep, uh, more deeper dive which we have now done uh we promised to do a video so we did uh it ended up being three parts we were going to do one video and there was just too much so we did two and that was too much so we did three and we we're just like for our sanity we have to end now so <laughs> <laughs> uh but we're gonna keep so that that's that's how i got into uh investigating the shroud it's just one of the claims that uh we tackled on the channel and we'll probably end up doing more content about it in the future too fair enough you know i've noticed real quick before we get started is the shroud of torn it's one of those things that it can be talked about in all sects of christianity right and and even atheistic uh like groups and stuff like that and you know you either love it or you hate it and and i've never seen a middle ground whenever it comes to the shroud of torn uh, so that's that was really interesting to me. So, guys, again, thank you for introducing yourselves. I am excited to get this show on the road. And so, David, if there's nothing else, we will go ahead and get started with Dale's opening statement. Nope, we are good to go. All right. All right, perfect. Um, so let me bring up my slides here for my opening. Okay. Share screen. And Dale, just so I'm on the same page, I've done for god forgive me uh do you want your slides soloed or do you just want to keep them like this uh okay so how does it uh yeah like that's fine like the half screen thing if, as okay. long as you guys can see uh like here let me from current slide or can you guys see the text i'm in full yeah. screen mode and, and yeah and before we start I, I just want to encourage everybody check out both these guys' channels, they've got a lot of good yes. content. Uh, even even if you disagree with them, check them out, learn a little something, you know. So I just want to throw that out there. I like that, David. We can all learn from each other. Yep. And so that's exactly what we're trying to do tonight. So Awesome, awesome. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm going to try try my best to go as fast as I can to get this in 15 minutes here. So 
Okay, cool. So first of all, I just want to say thank you very much to Jordan and uh, to you, Tyler and David, for doing this debate on the Shroud. It's an important topic. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to studying the Shroud, there are two major avenues of study, categories of study, the historicity of the Shroud and evidence pertaining to the nature of the Shroud images and you know how they might have been formed. In tonight's debate, we're going to be solely focusing on the historicity of the Shroud And we've uh, opted to talk about three topics, the relevance of the dating, the Shroud's link to the Sidarium of Oviedo, and the 1988 carbon-14 dating of the Shroud. Um, So in terms of the irrelevance of the dating, uh, just to save time, um, essentially the way I see it, this is a Shroud skeptic claim. They're claiming an argument, they're making an argument, look, premise one, if the Shroud is probably medieval, then the Shroud images are not miraculous signs from God that Christianity is true. Premise two, the shroud is in fact probably medieval. Therefore, they can't, they're not miraculous signs that Christianity is true. And uh, most of our debate is going to be focused on pre- debating premise two. But I also challenge premise one. And I want to say, look, Mr. Skeptic, you have the burden of proof here. If you want to establish the claim, you have to prove that premise one is true. So I'm, I'm not going to, I'm just going to leave it to, to Jordan to make his case. And see what reasons he gives us to think that premise one is true and we'll deal with that in the discussion period but to save time i'm going to move on to the premise two arguments so this is where i have the burden of proof on the sidarium of oviedo and the first thing to note is that it's really important to look at the totality of the evidence right there are at least 16 or more uh dating methods um for the shroud and most, if not virtually all of these, uh, do show that the Shroud is not medieval and or is consistent with a first century AD date. There's only been one scientific test that's shown the Shroud to be medieval, and that's the carbon dating. So it's it, in terms of this totality, we have to look at all the evidence here. All, when all the evidence contradicts one, we can't cherry pick. And even the famous carbon-14 scientist, the head of Oxford, Dr. Christopher Ramsey, agrees He says, with the radiocarbon measurements and all the other evidence we have about the shroud, there does seem to be a conflict in the interpretation of the different evidence. And for that reason, he thinks we should all go back to the drawing board and have a serious rethink um, in order to come up with a coherent story. So this this isn't just a pro-shroud claim. Um, Now, in terms of my evidence, the Sidarium of Oviedo, my goal here is just to prove that the shroud is not medieval. I can't prove that the shroud belonged to Jesus on the basis of the Sudarium, but I can say that it's consistent with the first century date. So what is this Sudarium? Essentially, it's the head cloth mentioned in the Gospel of John. And in terms of the history of the Sudarium, it's relatively uncontroversial. Pretty much everyone agrees that it is centuries older than the medieval period. Uh, We have various documents attesting to its existence the earliest of which is an anonymous document dated to 570 AD, where it's placed in Jerusalem uh, near a cave uh, of the monastery of St. Mark. Um, And additionally, it has been carbon dated three, at least three times. Uh, And again, it gives a date of about 700 AD there. Okay, so great. How do we link the Sidarium to the shroud then? I'm going to be looking at four, listing four lines of evidence. So the first are there are anatomical similarities of the features of the face. Um, they present the same size and proportions. The bloodstains and body fluids on the cloth are in the same relative location and size uh, uh, as both cloths. 
And there's been uh, limestone dust that corresponds in a remarkable way. And then finally, we have a pollen find on the Sidarium of Oviedo that suggests it dates to prior to 300 AD. Uh, and obviously, since the shroud will be linked to the Sidarium, that means the shroud predates 300 AD as well. Okay, so what are some of these anatomical similarities here? So number one, the nose has been found to be the same. There are the superciliary ridges. There's also an absence of the right uh, cheekbone, which corresponds to swelling on the shroud man's right cheekbone on the Shroud of Turin. Um, the tip of the nose, nostrils and nose wings, uh, the position and size of the mouth, the chin, and finally the shape of the beard. In terms of the blood stains and body fluids themselves, um, these have been shown to be uh, relatively the same in location and size and that sort of thing to a sufficient degree, whereby uh, many forensic experts, um, including I've listed Jose Delfin Villan Blanco, who's a professor of forensic medicine, um, as well as Alfonso Sanchez Hermosilla, they conclude that, look, there would be no problem to convince a court of justice regarding the assertion that the Turin Shroud and the Oviedo Sidarium enveloped the corpse of the same person. Now, there are objections. I'm going to leave that out of the opening to, to fit in. And when Jordan raises them, we'll come back to those. But there are objections, obviously. So I'll skip that. Additionally, there in 2016, there was a morphological study. And the main thing here is that Dr. Juan Manuel Minaro discovered that there seems to be unquestionable the fact that there's correspondence of the sources. So the point at which the blood flows start, these correspond on both cloths. And they, he concludes in the article, look, we have come to the point where it is forensically absurd to suggest that similar blood, these similar blood flows just happen by pure happenstance where all of the wounds, lesions, and swelling coincide on both cloths. Okay, so here's something that's really remarkable to me, and it was pointed out by Dr. C. Zerbarda, and it's the fact that half of a blood stain is found on the shroud, so we have this donut stained, there's a hole in the middle where there's missing blood, it's like a donut of blood. Well, guess what, the corresponding matching other half of this blood stain is found on the sudarium, so they link these two clots, half is on the, the blood stain is on the shroud, the other half is on the sudarium. Uh, so in terms of the, there's also been limestone dust studies, okay? So this is with X-ray fluorescence, uh, spectral instruments, and the correspondence here, so at the tip of the nose on the sudarium, they get this high-level uh, chemical concentration of a specific uh, chemical signature for this limestone dust. This corresponds to the tip of the nose on the shroud man. So this links the two cloths. Additionally, um, this also uh, coincidentally matches the same chemical concentration in the limestone at Calvary in Jerusalem. Um, I'm not going to be arguing that we can prove it came from Jerusalem, but just be aware of that, that link that it is consistent with it. Um, finally, we have the pollen studies here. And essentially, I'm not going to be looking at Max Frey's stuff or any of the controversial stuff. I'm only looking at Boy's 2016 peer-reviewed findings. And he found that there was this genus, right? I, I'm not going for species and that sort of thing, but there is this specific type of pollen entrenched in a blood stain, meaning that pollen grain got on there at the time the blood was being put on the cloth. It wasn't later contamination. And 
Uh, this is consistent with certain plants used for raisins, gum, and oil used in ancient burial rituals mentioned in Pliny the Elder and some other uh, Roman historians there. Um, now, here's, here's the key part about this in terms of dating. Because the, these um, particular botanical products stopped being used in funeral rituals during the great crisis of the Roman Empire, which is in the third century, around 220 to 280 thereabouts, um, and stuff like that. So therefore, we can date the sidereum to, uh, you know, 200s AD or earlier. And guess what? Because we forensically linked the shroud to the sidereum, that means the shroud is 200 AD or earlier. So that's where this uh, study is relevant. Finally, the sidereum has been carbon dated, as I said, and this it's 679 to 710. Um, and this is potentially problematic, but there is an explanation for the pro shroud side, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Okay, so carbon dating. So uh, in 1988, the uh, three uh, AMS carbon-14 labs dated the shroud, one sample of the shroud, and got a date 1260 to 1390 with a claimed 95% degree of confidence. There have been various um, proposals trying to explain that. I'll skip over that for time. Um, but one thing I want to note here is that in terms of the AMS carbon-14 dating method, this was new. It was only about 10 years old at the time. And in terms of dating linen textiles in particular, there have been some issues. So I quote here various carbon-14 experts just prior to 1989 saying that they had grave concern that the AMS technology was not ready for the task of dating the shroud because there's been very little testing of linen with this new method. Now, sure, I can hear the shroud skeptic saying, yeah, but okay, they've they've done further experiments and that's no longer a problem or it, we've discovered it's not an issue. Well, even as of 2023, Beta Analytics, the foremost uh, world's experts in car AMS carbon dating, the, this is the top lab in probably the world, even they say um, that the AMS carbon-14 dating, they will not undertake carbon dating of any textiles unless it's a part of a multidisciplinary scholarly process. So this is relevant to the shroud because they're, they're saying you shouldn't just believe in the carbon dating, it should be part of a multidisciplinary process. Well, remember, we've got those other dating methods and they all contradict the medieval hypothesis. So therefore you can't believe in the carbon-14 dating. Um, additionally, I've also presented various undercutting defeaters. So it's important to note the shroud skeptic on this front has the burden of proof for this, for the carbon dating, not me. I'm not going to be making a positive claim. I'm just presenting undercutting defeaters to defeat uh, Jordan's epistemic justification. And the couple ones I want to focus on is the fact that they only dated one sample. And also Bob Rucker's uh, discovered various statistical problems. And there's proof of a systematic measurement error, uh, which means we can't rely on it. So in terms of the single sample dating, um, even Harry Gov, he's the guy who invented AMS carbon dating. Trust me, he's no friend to pro shroud experts. He, he, he's like the Richard Dawkins of his era. He hated Christians and, and the shroud and all that. But um, he, he even admits, look, this new procedure of only dating one sample will produce a dating result that will be questioned in strictly scientific terms by many scientists around the world because of this arbitrarily small statistical basis. The use of a single sample is ill-advised as it will not generate a reliable date, but will give rather give rise to world controversy. 
this is the guy who invented the technique. Um, okay, so finally we get into Bob Rucker type stuff. So there, additionally, there's also been problems because in 1989, they published uh, 12 raw dates here from the three labs. And the reason they did that, they eliminated the outliers and this allowed them to uh, arrive at a 95% degree of confidence in their results using a chi, what's called a chi-square test. Now, problem is in 2017, uh, legal action was threatened against the British Museum by a guy named Tristan Casabianca. And they discovered that actually there were 16 results. And when you include all of those results, you get a, a range from 1155 to 1410. Uh, that's the range of dates. And you also find out that actually they, they don't have the 95% um, degree of certainty because here, here are the three lab results. And these are the uncertainties, right, within one sigma that they have. And what they did in 1988 is they said, well, 1260 is the line of best fit. Is it? It's not even touching the other two labs. Really, the line of best fit is this one that Bob Rucker has calculated as it goes through all three. So it, what you do is you have a slope of about 36 years per centimeter. So from the edge of the cloth, every centimeter that you date, it's going up uh, by 36 years kind of thing, right? And, and this is what causes the statistical problems. That This is what allows Bob Rucker to calculate there's a 98.6% probability uh, that there is a systematic measurement error at play in the results that were got, uh, obtained. And because of that, you have to um, you have to reject the results. You, really what they got was th three sigma difference. I know that's a technicality, but basically you have to get two sigma difference. That's an international statistical standard with the chi-squared test. That's what allows you to say 95% degree of confidence. They didn't have that. Uh, so that means we have to throw the results in the garbage. We can't trust the results at all. You're unjustified in believing them. Now, um, unless... Uh, Jordan can prove what the systematic measurement error was. What caused that systematic measurement error? Now, I as a pro shroud guy, I, and I have a theory, Bob Rucker's hypothesis of neutron absorption. I'm not going to present that in my opening um, because I don't want to distract from the fact that Jordan has the burden of proof here, right? He has to prove to us that that systematic measurement error is not inconsistent with a medieval date or is uh, consistent with that medieval date before he's allowed before anyone's allowed to believe in the carbon dating so yeah with that i will end and i hope i hope i was within the 15 minutes there so thank you for listening yeah 20 seconds left brother yep awesome i did it okay good job <laughs> awesome. gold star thank you all right jordan whenever you want to begin sir you start speaking i will start the timer all right, let me get my shared screen in the background. Okay. Okay, I'll let you know when I want that up. All right. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I am Jordan, and I am a lot of things. I'm an atheist. I'm an engineer, a uh, graduate of Virginia Commonwealth University. Go Rams. I am also an analyst working for a bank because they have a ton of money. Uh, but most importantly, I am a skeptic. A lot of people hear that and think that that means that I'm fundamentally opposed to the existence of God and uh, believing in miracles is verboten or something like that. That's not how I see it. I think that anybody, including the religious, can be a skeptic. 
Being skeptical is just about having doubts. It's about only believing things for which you have good evidence. And most importantly, it's about caring about the truth. After all, if you want to know what's true, you should be looking for evidence, right? So today, let's all be skeptics together. The position that I will be defending today is that the Shroud of Turin is likely a medieval artifact and is therefore not the authentic burial shroud of Jesus Christ. So uh, I'm just going to skip right to what I think the single best uh, piece of evidence is, the one that we just heard trashed for five or 10 minutes, the radiocarbon dating. So if you're watching this, you've probably heard of radiocarbon dating. In fact, I know you have because you just did. You know, it's a thing that scientists use to date old stuff, but it's important to know how it works in order to assess this evidence. So here's your crash course on how it works. In nature, everything is made of atoms. Some of those atoms are unstable. They'll eventually break apart into other things. We call these atoms radioactive if they are unstable in this way. Um, the amount of time it takes for half of it to go away, call that the half-life. All atoms are made of some sort of element, They and they transform elements to this radioactive decay. Carbon-14 is one such radioactive element. It is produced in the atmosphere by cosmic rays. Living creatures like you, me, we, everything else, we absorb C-14 ultimately from the atmosphere. Um, and so living creatures tend to have about as much C-14 in them as the atmosphere does. When the creatures stop, when they die, they stop absorbing the C-14. So there's no more coming in. So it's just decaying away into nitrogen. And since we have, uh, we know how fast this happens. We know the rate. We can look at how much C-14 there is now. And we can do some math uh, that will show us how long it has been since the thing died. One caveat to this, it's very important. Uh, the sample that you're testing needs to be thoroughly cleaned so you can tell that the carbon from it is from the thing and not something else. So like, imagine you were dating a 5,000 year old artifact, but you're eating a sandwich over top of it and you drop some mustard on it. Well, now you're, if you date that without cleaning it, uh, you're gonna be dating the mustard because the mustard is radioactive. Your food is radioactive, you're radioactive. Everything's radioactive, so you have to clean it. Um, that's why labs go to great efforts to clean their samples before they test them, but it is never going to be perfect. So now that we are all experts in radiocarbon dating, let's go back to the Shroud of Turin. In the late 80s, as we heard, a team of researchers took a small cutting from one corner of the Shroud of Turin. Um, at this point, we can put up the slides. I think a picture is helpful. That sample was uh, small, measuring just 73 millimeters by 17 millimeters. About half of it was reserved for later use, and half was sent to the three labs that they used, one in Arizona, one in Zurich, and one in Oxford. Uh, the labs did their work. They published the results uh, in the journal Nature, and uh, they reported 1260 to 1390. Now, the study is not without its flaws, which I will address in a moment, but let's keep in mind what we are trying to get from these results. All we need to know is, is the shroud from the first century? Yes or no? It's not a big deal if the dating's off by a few decades here or there. What is important is, is it off by a thousand years or more? So this is where this picture is going to come in handy. If you look at the order coming from the edge of the shroud, they are laid out with reserve. Don't worry about that. It's not important. But it goes Oxford, Zurich, then Arizona. That order is going to be important, so try to remember it. So uh, the dates from Zurich and Arizona are pretty much in agreement with each other. They're right on top of each other. Oxford's don't quite match up to the other two. Oxford's, uh, Oxford's latest date is 1220, while the other labs have that as the earlier date. The numbers there won't match because those are years before 1950 for technical reasons that aren't important. So some analysis was done in 2012 by Riani et al. that showed that Oxford being different wasn't just random chance. You're going to have some random variation, but this wasn't it. There was, in fact, systematic bias involved. That means that it wasn't just bad luck. Uh, in fact, as was mentioned, if you plot the average age reported by each lab, uh, you'd see a slope going up as you traveled further away from the edge of the cloth. That is all true. Uh, but 
What may not be obvious from the picture you get in those papers and the picture we saw earlier is how that actually looks. So what I've done here is I've plotted all of the measurements. The raw data was eventually released to the public. This is all of those measurements. And it is laid out. We don't know exactly where within each lab stuff they uh, put their their measurement, at least I haven't seen that published anywhere. So what I did was I put all of the measurements in the way most consistent with what I'll be talking about later, Bob Rucker's hypothesis, which is as you move further from the edge of the shroud uh, to the middle, it will show up younger. That's what it looks like, okay? So you can see that Zurich and Arizona are right on top of each other. Oxford is not quite on top of them. It's a little bit off to the side, but this is the kind of thing that you want to fit a slope. And technically it is true. There is a slight slope as you go to the right. So, there are some ex uh, explanations for this. Bob Rucker looked at this uh, information here, and because of this sloping age, he came up with what I think might be the most elaborate ad hoc hypothesis the world has ever seen. He said that the cloth appears to have more carbon-14 as you go away from the edge, because it in fact does have more carbon-14 as you go away from the edge, but it's not due to contamination, no. It is due to a burst of neutron radiation that emitted from the resurrecting Jesus. Of course, this radiation is special radiation. We couldn't just have normal radiation that goes in every direction. No, this radiation goes straight up, not in every direction. Why? Don't worry about it. Uh, the source for this special radiation isn't known, but what's the source? Who cares? Doesn't matter. All that matters is it gives he, the, the NCMP calculations give the answer he likes, which is that, <laughs> that, that it's because of this magic burst of radiation. Now, Bob isn't here to defend his model today, so I don't want to come down on it too hard, but I will point out a few things. First, uh, the prediction is that the dates will go uh, oldest on the outside edge of the shroud, younger as you go. And if you only look at the averages, that is clearly what you see. However, if you look at the actual dates, it goes up and then down, up and then down, because that's how the lab results are. Now, this does not necessarily rule out Rucker's model. It's possible that, in fact, the true age is going up, but due to some unlucky variation, it comes out this way. So it doesn't rule out Rucker, but it is certainly a piece of disconfirming evidence. Um, so that's not what we see. Worse than this, though, is that there is no evidence whatsoever for Rucker's model that wasn't A, the very thing the model was invoked to explain, with namely the slope, or B, an input to his model. Rucker explicitly normalizes the, re the results of his MCMP calculation to the, he has to. Like the, the calculations he did, the modeling he did, can't give an absolute date. You have to give it a known value. His known value is the radiocarbon dating. So because there is no external evidence for this, it's just what he was either trying to explain or the things he put into it, Rucker's model is ad hoc. Now, I will say this in favor of Rucker's model. It makes very clear, easily tested predictions about what would be found were we to test other pieces of the shroud. So in that arena, Rucker's model absolutely rocks. However, you don't get any points for making predictions. You only get points for having them confirmed. And none of Rucker's predictions have been confirmed in a way that is unambiguous. Okay. Nobody should put a single gram of confidence into this elaborate uh, rationalization of unevidenced conjecture unless and until further testing is done. Okay. But Rucker's model aside, and I don't think I need this anymore. Rucker's model aside, uh, we do actually have a discrepancy. Like there is absolutely systematic bias going on, and we need to explain that. So, what is one possible explanation? Well, we can look to the 2020 paper written by Walsh and Schwalb that was titled An Instructive Interlaboratory Comparison. Uh, they looked at the difference between the three labs. They determined that while there was disagreement with Zurich and Arizona against Oxford, the lab's results were internally consistent. Okay. They also pointed out that while Oxford is technically outside of the bounds, the difference is extremely slight. They said that if Oxford's dates had been shifted just 10 years, 
then the samples would accord with each other. We wouldn't ha be having this discussion at all, right? Um, and so to explain this, they suggested, they noted that Oxford actually had slightly different cleaning procedures than the other two labs. Specifically, they used petroleum ether, uh, which is very good at removing lipids and waxes from samples, such as you might have on the Shroud of Turin. Zurich and Arizona did not have that. Now, how much contamination would you need? Because I did, all labs cleaned it, of course. So how much contamination extra would you need for Oxford to get rid of to explain this? Well, that depends on how old the contamination is. You know, you'd need less the, the, uh, the closer to the present that contamination is. But suppose it were 18th century. Oxford would need to be just 1.7% better at cleaning the sample than Zurich and Arizona were. So we've got two options on offer. On offer. Either Jesus emerged, eh, emerged, Jesus emitted a burst of radiation in defiance of all known laws of physics, such that this is the Rosetta Stone to new exotic physics and different dimensions and all other this kind of stuff. Or, or one lab was a little bit better at cleaning its sample than the other two. Now, I think it's perfectly obvious which one of these we should prefer as an explanation, but I'll leave that as an exercise to the reader, I guess. Now, some Shroud supporters say that this is a bridge too far. They note that uh, the lab's results do not, in fact, match that there were different procedures between one versus the other. There are regularities that throw it outside of the 95% uh, confidence level. And therefore, we should throw it in the garbage. We should pretend as if it never existed. We should just completely purge it from our minds. And that, I think, would be a grave mistake. Whatever else you may believe, their measurements remain. We can't use these results to say whether it was 1260 or 1300 or 1350. I agree. These results aren't reliable to that degree. However they do still give us valuable information. The information they give us is that they did detect this much carbon-14. They detected too much for it to be first century. And therefore, it is likely not first century. Okay? And that's the important thing to hold on to. So let me sum up what I talked about. The Shroud of Turin was radiocarbon dated to the 13th to 14th centuries. There is a slight discrepancy between Oxford and the other two labs. This discrepancy... If Oxford's dates were just moved <clears throat> a little bit, it would disappear, but they weren't, fair enough, but it is a small discrepancy. The difference required to reconcile these would be just 2% better cleaning procedures on Oxford compared to the other two if it were 18th century contamination. Um, and that is a much more um, plausible and uh, less ad hoc explanation, so it's the one we should prefer. While the issues uh, with these reports are very real, and I fully endorse that we should have more carbon dating done. We should test other samples all throughout the shroud. I'm all in favor of that. I am not standing in anyone's way to rip this thing apart and test it further. Uh, but if your interests are only whether the shroud is first century versus 14th, which is what my interests are, then the carbon dating is more than sufficient to tell you that. All right. Thank you so much, Jordan. All right, guys. So that ends the opening segments and or the opening statement segments. And just good job to to both of you all. And so just so I'm following, I want to just kind of lay out what I heard um, just quickly and then we can jump into it. So, Dale, uh, just a brief summary. What you're saying is that there are more um, there. They're definitely different tests that you're relying on to get you a date that's earlier than medieval. And what Jordan is saying is that, no, the radiocarbon dating kind of sets it in stone for you that this is a medieval uh, artifact. Is that, am I, am I following for, yeah. for the most part? 
Yeah, so my case, I, I would definitely, for the purposes of this debate, we're just looking at the Sudarium and the Carbon-14. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I, I did briefly mention there are at least 16 methods kind of thing. But um, Just out of curiosity, and we're not going to dive into all of them, but what are these 16 methods? Oh, Can you just um, name a few just so we can get a, an impression of what they are? Of course, yeah. So uh, the Hungarian Prey Codex, um, you know, there's the Justinian coins from 692 to 695, where... Fonte has done a statistical analysis and concluded that the engraver was looking at the shroud in 692 when he made that. Um, there's also the Sidarium of Oviedo, which we're talking about here today. Um, there's various textile evidences. So, for example, I know that you covered Hugh Ferry's um, argument that it's medieval based on the weaving defects. But what I found is that we can actually detect that there are no uh, warp or weft regulators present on the loom that made the shroud and that proves it can't be medieval it has to come from ancient times because they all would have had stuff like that so what i'll say about these is that while you can have 16 or 24 or 100 different methods what matters is how strong these methods are and i don't find those other methods convincing i mean so it's a difference in magnitude i think we have one extremely convincing piece of evidence that is more than all of these others which i don't particularly find very persuasive but since we're not going to actually talk about those we should probably stop talking about them and talk about something else <laughs> fair enough does that answer and yeah in terms of my view on the carbon dating where i would disagree i, I don't i don't think that we are justified at all not even 51 percent in believing the shroud is medieval on the basis of the carbon 14 uh, dating evidence. So that's my difference there, Tyler, if that helps. Yeah, yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, I mean, I'm just gonna hand it over uh, to you guys and and let you do your thing. And then if I have any more questions, I'll jump in if David doesn't have anything. Well, since uh, you opened with the irrelevance of the dating, um, and I think be before we talk about whether we should date it, why don't we talk about whether that's even relevant at all, right? Awesome. Uh, so yes. if I if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that I, as a skeptic, must hold uh, I must assert that the shroud is not uh, is medieval and is not a miracle. Yeah, I mean, if if there's something to talk about, like if you don't if you don't think that's a claim on your part, I, then yeah, you don't have to bear the burden of proof. But if you do think that it's true that if the shroud is probably medieval, then that means it can't be a miracle. Then what's your reason kind of thing. I don't think it not being, I don't think that it being medieval necessarily precludes it being a miracle. However, okay. what I do think is that if it weren't Jesus authentic burial shroud, nobody would care about it at all. It would, if it is not Jesus authentic burial shroud, then it is just the most elaborate Jesus on toast ever to have shown up, right? The only reason we're talking about this at all is because you and I assume you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think it's pretty safe to think you think it's authentic. And everybody in the audience who's rooting for me to fail, they all think this is the authentic burial shroud of Jesus. I don't think anybody uh, would be talking about this in any way, except maybe Otangelo, if, uh, <laughs> if, if, this weren't, right, if this weren't the authentic burial shroud of Jesus. So while I don't, I don't think that it being medieval necessarily precludes it being, I, I don't, I could I mean, God can do whatever he wants, right? So if he wants to make the an image in the Middle Ages, he can do that if he really wants to. But like, who who cares about it then? Like, who is who is the person that cares about it? Well, so I am actually like I I um, this is literally I, in my I wrote a three hundred page uh, chapter on the shroud. That's a chapter, right? But um, 
nothing on the dating at all. Because to me, the most important thing about the shroud is that we can prove those images are probably miraculous of a miraculous nature. So I focus on the scientific, physical and chemical properties, what I call these minimal relevant features. And that's, that led me to, in part, led me to faith to Christ. I, I could care less whether it's medieval or belong to Jesus. I, I wouldn't say I care awesome. less. If you want to concede right now that it's medieval, then we can just go home. We can just end the debate. I will perfect. I will happily say that that doesn't mean it's not a miracle. We can just end it right now. Okay. Well, I'm not. I'm not conceding because, in point of fact, I don't believe it is medieval. But even if it were, I, I think we could. Sure, let's concede the debate, and I can still prove it's a miracle. You'll if you give that to me, great. Become a Christian, and we'll we'll go home together. But so what? what bugs me about this is while I, I do think it, it is technically true that it could be like that, this feels a little bit like a Mott and Bailey defense. Like you've got the bigger claim that it is Jesus authentic burial shroud, miraculous thing with the resurrection, but that is too hard to defend. So we're going to retreat back into the, our castle on the Mott over there and we're going to, oh, well, it's not, it's not actually authentic. It's not actually first century. Are the skeptics all gone? Awesome. And then they just run back out and now it's first century again. Like it just defend the position you hold. The whole position you hold is that it's first century. Defend it. Yeah, um, and, and I I do right in my shows, but to me, uh, I don't think we have to defend uh, something like it's sufficient. If I can prove that it's a miracle, let let's pretend I can convince you with my argumentation that you are convinced. Yeah, this thing is a miracle of God to authenticate Christianity. How, that's the most important thing. Who cares if it actually covered Jesus? God God is giving us a miracle. It's the equivalent to you today praying right here, God, give me a miracle. And he does. Um, are you saying, you? well, that didn't go to Jesus' time. I'm not going to believe that. No, you're, you're going to be appropriately converted, right? I just think, well, I, I cannot prove that it's not a miracle because if God wanted to, if I was going to be deceived by a trickster God who really, for some reason, wanted to make a burial shroud in the 14th century with all the features it has, if he, if he wants to trick me, there's nothing I can do to stop him from tricking me, right? But what I can say is that uh, it is likely not the authentic burial shroud of Jesus, and that's that's where my interest mostly ceases. If if it didn't if it didn't touch the holy testicles, that I'm not that interested in it. Oh goodness. Okay. Uh, what now? One thing that's interesting because this is I, I've dealt with about seven reasons that skeptics will give to try and warrant that premise one. Uh, maybe I should be sharing it. I don't know, but um, that premise one that if it is medieval, then it's not a miracle. One of them is that it, it, this is one that David Russell himself gave that it makes God a trick, a trickster or a deceiver. And I think this is the most weighty objection, but I, I still don't see it. I don't see how, I don't see how the conversation went this way so fast. Okay, well, let, let me ask. Let me oh, ask another. I don't think. <laughs> no, it's not. I love it. So okay. I, you, you mentioned that I have the burden of proof for all of premise one. I actually don't think I do. Okay. I think if I'm going to say it's not first century then that is something I should be able to demonstrate, right? But if you want to say it's a miracle, that's on you. Like, if that's you want true. to prove that it's a miracle, that's on you to prove to us. And if, if but not you, like, as a person, but it's on the, the position, right, to be demonstrated. And if the position can't be demonstrated to the point where it's the most probable explanation, then the appropriate thing to do is not accept it. So I don't accept that I have the burden of proof to prove it is not a miracle. You have to prove that it is. Fully I, agree. And is it okay if I share my share my screen for a second? Just to yeah, go ahead. Though. Can I ask a question real quick? Just 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 totally okay, just curiosity. Say, just let me say this. And go ahead. Go ahead. Just very quickly, 
what Jordan just said, I absolutely agree. It is on me to prove that it is in fact a miracle kind of thing or not. But remember, premise one is just a conditional. It's saying if the shroud is medieval, then it can't be a, a miracle. So that's why I, that would be your claim. That's the way I kind of see it. But you, Jordan's right. If if I were claiming, when I'm claiming it is in fact a miracle, that's on me to prove. And mm -hmm. I haven't done that. So Tyler, go. So just... Um... <sighs> Given what you said, Jordan, just a second ago, it sounds like you're connecting a miracle to God, right? Do you believe that a miracle can be performed without God existing? Are those two things connected? Um, I think so. The way miracles are usually understood, it would be some kind of supernatural event caused by an agent of some sort. Correct. Um, now, whether that classifies as God depends on your conception of God. But I'd, I'd readily concede that if there is a... Uh, uh, miracle it would it would mean that my conception of reality is not accurate okay. uh, and the implications of that would depend on the miracle and the entity that did the thing right fair enough so so if Dell could prove that this is a miracle sufficiently for you that would get you to change some aspect of your worldview and oh for, for sure if, okay. if this if this were proven to uh, if this were demonstrated to be miraculous uh, yeah. in, in the supernatural sense I'd probably stop being an atheist okay. you know Fair enough. Uh, it kind of puts you in a quarter, wouldn't it? I, I, I don't, mean, I, mean I, I would still be a skeptic. Uh, yeah. My skepticism is more baseline to me than my atheism. I've been wrong about God before. I'm happy to be shown I'm wrong now. If God exists, then I'll stop being an atheist. No problem. Yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, I'm teasing. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to change my mind. That's no problem. Uh, it's just I'm going to go where I think the evidence is. Absolutely. Yeah. Right on. Well, let's 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 get back to the first century. Um, Jordan, you did say that you thought Bob Rucker's defense was ad hoc. And um, I wanted to hear from Dale about this because, Dale, you had a lot in this to respond to. And I, I want to hear your opinion on this. Yeah. So so in terms of the ad hoc claim, so first of all, Jordan is right in certain set that his model is based on certain inputs. Right. So the whole starting basis is that carbon 14 data he knew in advance what that is and he plugged that into his mcnp calculations right so that that's a given type type deal right um one thing i i might dispute though it's it's not all given so one of the the reasons bob thinks that he can make a rebutting defeater which does uh carry with it a burden of proof on bob rucker's part i i don't go that far but he would say look the the slope that 36 um years per centimeter was a fulfilled prediction on his part because he didn't input that into the calculations. He input the carbon dates and did his thing and it came out and it just so happened to coincide with the known slope of the carbon dating is about, it's about 35.87 years per centimeter is what he got. So that's a fulfilled prediction. That isn't an input or an ad hoc um, element there. Um, go ahead. I disagree with that characterization for two reasons uh one that is the thing he was trying to explain to begin with so uh, an ad hoc explanation is one's like i have a piece of data here's an explanation for that piece of data that's ad hoc right you need other pieces of data to 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 substantiate your prediction you don't get bonus points for making a prediction of the thing you already knew going in you know unless it's like extraneous to your model in, in every respect but his sort the source of his neutrons uh, like how they're distributed throughout the body, all that sort of stuff. That is something there is no basis in physical reality whatsoever. 
There is absolutely no physical mechanism. There's no law of physics. There's, there's nothing to ground this model in. It is it is supernatural from, from floor to ceiling. And so he could have made that distribution anything he wanted, and there is nothing to say it's wrong. So I, I'm not saying that he went through and finely tuned. Uh, I, I don't know. I wasn't there when he, when he did it. I'm just saying I am not impressed that it matches the slope he was trying to match to begin with because it's not grounded in anything. Now, I would be extraordinarily impressed if his prediction of the, the centerpiece, it's, I think he predicts it would show up to be like 4,000 years in the future. 8,500 8, or something. Yeah, 8, okay. 8, it, it varies by where you are on the thing, you know, by the distribution of neutrons. If you did a radiocarbon date dating thing, around the centerpiece and it did 8,000 years in the future. Oh my goodness. That would, I would happily tell Bob that I was wrong the whole time, but that would be a confirmed prediction. He doesn't have any of those yet. Yeah. I'm just trying to showing a visual image from the slides of, of what you're talking about. So this is what Jordan's talking about here, right? So based on Bob's model, if you were to date carbon date, like the stomach of the shroud of Turin, you would get 8,500 AD because the carbon 14 content has been injected artificially into. Right. It would be, it would have more carbon 14 than something that were to die who had gotten its carbon 14 from the atmosphere. So it would basically violate one of the assumptions of carbon 14 dating to begin with. And this would show that that had happened. Right. And I have no problem with Bob making this, having this idea. That's fine. Making hypothesis to, to make predictions that can be tested. That's the point of a hypothesis. That's all fine. Right. The thing I object to is not the mere fact that he made this up, but that when he's talking casually to people and other people I've heard talk about it, they treat it as if it is this explanation that has all this confirming evidence because he did MCMP calculations. And it's not. It's just it's it's just his idea. I mean, show me a piece of confirming evidence and then I will care about it. But why should anybody care about it until it's confirmed? Yeah. I so And that's why I kind of tend to present this as just an undercutting defeater i know that bob disagrees right he, he says that that slope is a fulfilled prediction he also incorporates the sudarium of oviedo because remember that carbon dated to 700 ad that was not a part of his original model at all right. um maybe, so that so, sorry i didn't mean to interrupt go ahead no no problem uh yeah you you go ahead and talk and i'll i'll bring up my visual okay. you guys don't mind yeah. me sharing my screen all the time right i don't mind at all okay. uh so it is true that uh, if you put the Sidarim of Oviedo in a specific spot in the Jesus tomb model he, he came up with, uh, the rock cut tomb, if he made this picture in like this 3D model space, right that right there, yep. And if you put the Sudarium in a certain spot, it dates to the 700 CE or the, it accords with the other radiocarbon dating, right? Yep. And if you put it in a different spot, it would come up with a different date and you could move it all the way around the tomb and get any date you wanted. The tomb, by the way, which he also made up because we don't have that tomb anywhere. So what is the shape? Now, I, I understand he's basing it on what he thinks is plausible based on tombs of the time, but we don't know that that tomb shape is correct and the, ge the geometry of the tomb would have a significant effect on the dating of Sudarium. So that he doesn't get credit for that either because it could have been any answer he wanted, even if he got lucky and said, I think it'll probably be next to it. And sure enough, it is next to it. Had it not, had he said, oh, it's probably two feet to the right and one foot this way, and it came up with the wrong date, he could have moved it, and he could have kept moving it until it had the right answer. And there's nothing to say he's wrong, because there's absolutely no information. We have no information of where the Sudarium was in this tomb. None whatsoever. Even if you accept the whole idea, there is absolutely no way we could possibly know that. Okay, so... I don't go as far as you. I, I do see your point to an extent, right? I, I remember I kind of agreed with you, but 
there are some limitations, right? So because the, the shroud would be this way, head would be here. And like, so if you see on the, uh, this is the shroud, right? This is where the face is. These are the feet kind of thing, right? And we know this from his model. And he's saying, well, the sudarium was placed by itself. So Bob is Bob said in advance, the most likely place would be somewhere around on this left bench, right? It would, it, that's more probable in his in his mind, again, in advance of his model kind of thing, as a place where it would be put. Number, it wouldn't be put on the floor, for example. You know, you're a bunch of Jews stepping on a bloody cloth. No, it, it wouldn't be on the walls or wouldn't be on the ceiling. So these would be falsifications. And in terms, it could have been thrown to the right bench, but, you know, that's less plausible. So so Bob Bob is saying, like, being putting it on this left bench is the most plausible explanation. Um, and it is interesting that uh, oh, come on now. Oh, so I'm being facetious when I say it could have come up with any date. I mean, obviously the most radiation is at the chest, right? So I guess the most it could possibly get is that date, right? I, I, I'm being, it couldn't be any date from negative infinity to infinity. But there is a wide variety of dates it could have had depending on where it is in the tomb. And while I understand why he says, oh, I think it would probably be next to the face or whatever like there's not that that isn't grounded in anything there, there's he is not forced to put that anywhere now if if somehow we had a map of the tomb we had a picture of it i don't know if we knew for a fact the sudarium was in this spot and then it agreed that would be a piece of confirming evidence yeah and i i think i have to concur with what you're saying right so what but he's basically saying is look we carbon dated it it's in this range he he did 780 plus or minus 50 years so that's what these yellow things are on the sides um now let's say some we don't know that the sudarium was in fact put here right we're just saying well that aligns with the carbon dating and it's a plausible spot but maybe they threw it over here and then we would have a falsification we don't know where the sudarium was the exact spot we're just saying, well, this is a historically plausible spot and seems like one of the more probable spots on this bench here, close by to the shroud. And guess what? It just happens to match to the carbon dating that they did for the sedarium. So like, that's kind of what this evidence at best proves there. So it's something, but I mean, it is, it's, I guess it's not nothing, but it's not much. Uh, I will say though, one, one thing I'd want to reiterate again, that there are a lot, I deal with a lot of, of conspiracy theorist stuff. I debunk young earth creationists too sometimes. Mm -hmm. And it is very difficult sometimes to get a firm, like something you could actually test from these sectors. To Bob's credit, that is not the case here. Mm -hmm. By golly, does he make some firm predictions. In fact, I think these predictions are so big that the 8,000 uh, years in the future radiocarbon, I did some math and I should have put it in my notes and I forgot, but I think it is likely that you could test that without even doing radiocarbon dating. I bet you could just like take a detector and and do right. do counting at the beginning. Like if you put it in a place where you were filtering out most of the background radiation, I think you could be like this with a Geiger counter you could buy on Amazon. Like so, like <laughs> let's make it happen, Catholic Church. You know? Oh my God! Well, I'm I'm totally with you. Like, dear, sneak in a Geiger counter. I don't know if you can. I've never been there, but yeah, like uh, let's test it. This is something that you can easily falsify um right or not, and it would be incredible so okay well there is one thing that i i wanted to one ad hoc thing that i heard you mention about the verticality of the thing you seem to think that this is an ad hoc thing on bob's part it, it's not this is more data input right because 
scientifically, um, I should I should bring that up. I have a visual image, but it's been scientifically proven through STIRP that one of the feature, physical features of the shroud images is that they were vertically encoded, either a rectilinear or a curvilinear encodation path. And that's one of the ways we can rule out direct contact or gas emissions because you'd have these wider like mask of Agamemnon effects, wraparound effects, right? So this is more data input. He, we know that whatever mechanism made the shroud images encoded it in this vertical direction. And that's why he's positing the vertical directions. And what he said, last, last part, sorry, I'm talking too much, but if the protons are vertically aligned, that's what causes the image, these charged particles and you know the electrical discharge is what actually colors the fibers. Then through the law of conservation uh, of momentum, Bob said, if I'm remembering properly, uh, the neutrons would be going the opposite way. So again, ver one's vertically up, it would be going vertically down. That's that's why they're vertically yeah, So, up. okay. Radiation doesn't act that way. When radiation is emitted from a particle, it is emitted in a random direction. And so the aggregate of that is it goes in all directions. That's what actually happens with radiation in real life. And so... What that should have been a disconfirming piece of evidence right there, but it's not. Why? Because he can invoke magic. He can say, well, it's vertically collimated. Why is it vertically collimated? No good reason. It just is. Like it is because that's what I would like it to be. It is vertically collimated because I would prefer if it were vertically collimated so it can do this image thing, right? What is this? What is the source of his neutrons? It is from deuterium fission. How did the deuterium fission? Eh, doesn't matter. There's deuterium in there. It'll fission somehow. I'm sure God will take care of it. Like, this is the kind of ad hoc nature of his hypothesis. There, there's no mechanism. There's nothing there. So definitely the initial mechanism is supernatural, right? Uh, during that first femtosecond and stuff like that. And yes, I admit that usually radiation is isotropic, right? It radiates in all directions equally. Although Bob is saying, well, I mean, that's it's not always true. Even in the natural world, we have coherent radiation, right? Lasers, for example, example, right? So and when we're talking about a supernatural act during the resurrection, I, I don't that God had to make it vertically to in order to encode those high resolution images. Okay. But God God doesn't need protons or neutrons to encode an image. Why would he why? Like if your if your answer is well they had to be vertical to encode an image you don't need these to encode an image God could just change the elemental makeup of the shroud if he really wanted to he could directly do it if he wanted to so like it's not like God is restrained by using protons you know it but he's not restrained to use protons like why why not use it by the same token it's the same thing right like it, it that's the way he did it um and okay. The, why they're vertical? There, there is no mechanism to make them vertically collimated. It's not like, hey, I think this specific thing, this mechanism, which is known and understood, and it's pre it is a fact of nature that we deal with. This mechanism was triggered. Say, for instance, for instance, deuterium did fission in nature all the time, right? And all it needed was this much energy. And when it does that, it emits vertically collimated radiation. That would be better, but it mm -hmm. doesn't do that. Right. So like it, that is just another piece that is contrary to what we would expect. Does that mean it's wrong? I mean, maybe there is ex exotic physics or miracles at play. But again, that is just another reason why we should be reluctant to accept his model, because it is it, it's just another thing he's asking us to believe.
excuse me, he's, he's asking us to buy vertically collimated neutrons. He's asking us to buy the protons doing this thing, but only effect, affecting the whole way around. Even though the protons are coming from this way, uh, the, the dehydration is all the way around evenly, but only the, it, there's like a lot of pieces that he's just asking us to swallow. Yeah, but, and my, my main point when I started this is it, it's not ad hoc, right? So in terms of all the way around, that's called, it's the feature known as cylindrical uniformity. I don't believe that's been proven yet, but some researchers have have claimed to find it, and his model would be consistent with the the 360 degree uh, thing there. So it, that's not ad it's not ad hoc. He's not just making it up. There's data from Sterp studying Shroud, and then he's inputting that into his models, as you said. Yeah, like okay, it's got to be vertical because we know that the Shroud of Turin had a vertical encodation path. Now, is that a, a normal natural mechanism? No, like you said, when I don't understand the process, but deuterium, I understand the, the protons and neutrons come out of that from the entire body, not just the body surface. Um, and they, that should be isotropic, if naturally speaking, but for whatever well, reason. Well, you guys been on uh, Bob Rucker for, <laughs> time to move for on. a while now. I think it's time to move on. We beat that dead horse enough. Uh, Real quick. I oh, go ahead, Tyler. Well, I was going to say we do have an audience question and it goes sure. back to um, and forgive me if I butcher this. So Jarosla, did I? I hope I pronounced that right. Anyway, she asked uh, about the slope. So, Jordan, you presented a picture uh, of the slope where they point uh, they uh, put the points on for the dates, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for, for the Shroud of Torn. And she is asking, is the slope present on the Sudarium? That is an outstanding question. I don't know the answer to. Uh, I have I've heard Bob say that the sudarium matches the the radiocarbon dating. Like in his model, it'd be seven hundred, and it's seven hundred in the dating. And I've seen the little picture, but I haven't seen like, and maybe he has. I've read most of what he's published, but it's possible I missed something. Okay. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. I, I, well, okay. So you're asking if there's a slope on the sudarium. I okay. haven't. So the um. The radiocarbon dating that was done on the Sidarium, I couldn't find it published anywhere. Um, I looked and couldn't find it. it. Doesn't mean it's not out there, but I didn't find it, and so I can't like dig into that to see. I would need to see the raw dates it gave. And even if you did that, like, because there's going to be a range, right? But yeah. unless they told you this one went here and this one went here and this one went here, you could arrange those any way you liked. So you could make a slope if you really wanted to, and that wouldn't. It would just be something you're you're constructing. So the short answer is. I don't know, and I'm not sure it's possible to know. Okay. Dale? Yeah, so I, I, I'm with Jordan. I, I don't think anyone's done it. Obviously, we, we've carbon dated it three times, or four times, but the fourth one was messed up. So there are three reliable times. It ranges 679 to about 710 AD and then around that range. So, yes, there are differences as to whether there's a slope. I don't know. I don't think Bob's uh, worked on that at all, that question that I know of. Okay. Uh, so that's an interesting question. Right on. Yeah. Right on, guys. Also, I wanted to just tell our audience, we are taking audience questions. If you would like to ask the panel a question regarding the Shroud of Torn, please put it in the comments. Put at Faith Unaltered so we see it. Also, Super Chats get priority. So if you would like to help us fund and get your question asked immediately, then send us a Super Chat and we will get to it as soon as we get it. Well, I know you were super excited to get to the Sudarium of Oviedo, and that's probably the thing I'm least excited about. So we should do your thing. <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna, I, I was just gonna push us there because I think that will lead us into carbon dating too. Okay. Uh, I was gonna, 
the, the big thing I was going to ask here is how, because I'm a little confused. How are we getting uh, um, the Sodarium and the Shroud being in the first century? That's where I'm really at. Are we saying because the carbon dating is a little mixed here or we can't rely on the carbon dating? Is that why we're getting here? Because it seems like the carbon dating for the Shroud is is different and it seems like uh, the Sidarium yeah. is different. So how are we actually getting here? I would like to see that point really expounded on. Okay. Okay. So in the first place, so you do understand that the Sidarium proper, like the, the evidence from the Sidarium doesn't directly prove that either the Shroud or the Sidarium date to the first century. We can't do that at best. We have the first mention of it is 570 AD in Jerusalem. And since we can, and also we have the pollen study that if it works, that dates it before 300 AD. Um, so that's what we can do with the dating. It's either there or earlier, which is consistent with Jesus time. Now, okay, well, how would we explain, is it, how is it consistent with the first century date if we're getting a carbon date 700 AD and with the shroud 1325 plus or minus 65 years, whatever, right? So this is what me and Jordan have been talking about with Bob Rucker's model. If it, if during the resurrection event, the shroud and the sudarium were irradiated with neutrons uh, from the body during that resurrection event, this, this would affect the ratio of carbon 14 to carbon 12 and, and put a whole bunch of carbon 14 in it to, uh, to different degrees, depending on where you are on the cloth, right? So that's why we're getting the slope. We're getting different dates, right? The the shroud sample dated to, maybe I should show the show the image again, dated to the thirteen twenty five, but with the sudarium, come on now, uh, that that would because that was further away from the body, the source of the neutrons, it got less neutron irradiated, and therefore it's not as um, not as effective, right? So. You know, like see here with the body, right? So the, the neutrons go up and they affect different areas of the cloth. This this is where they dated the shroud in 1988. And it gave a date around 1300s or something like that. But if, if they dated, you know, the middle of the shroud, you would get this 8,500 date. Or if you dated here, you would get this date because different new levels of neutron irradiation are happening depending on where you date the cloth. And it's there's the basically he his model is that there's more body mass the body the new the body emits neutrons pretty much evenly through the whole body and there's more body in the set chest than there is by the feet and so you get more more neutrons equals more carbon fourteen equals more thing and Something so about that the, center mass thing huh yeah and when the neutrons are bouncing around off of the thing it'll irradiate the whole chamber to some degree and that uh, is how he gets the sudarium but here but pay attention to what's happening. Uh, now we're now another thing is being tacked on to Bob Rucker's on like with a one piece of radiocarbon dating that is uh, shows it or would say it's not first century. Oh, well, we're going to use Bob Rucker's to explain that doesn't have any confirmed predictions yet, but we'll use that. Uh, what about this other radiocarbon dating? Oh, well, Bob Rucker's hypothesis. Again, this is a hypothesis that has no confirming data. And let's say hypothetically we test it and Bob or for whatever reason, we reject Bob Rucker's hypothesis. We don't like it. Is there any other explanation for this radiocarbon date? Do we just throw it out, like because it is no can good? I, Jordan, can I ask you a question? If it if it's okay, if David, uh, did you get your your answer, or are you still? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I would love to see you guys go into this further. So, so for, you know, carry on. 
Okay, so so Jordan, I, I have a question for you because Bob has told me about what he's working on now with his calculations. He's going beyond, right? So he's uh, I I didn't I'm not going to understand it, but it's something about acceleration, okay? And this is going to he's going to give even more detailed things where he's going to be able to say predict what the subsamples should have gotten. These aren't going to be inputs; it's going to be predicted by his model. Now, if that's true and it matches, you know those uh, let me. Um, it matches these subsample, 16 subsample things. Would you consider that a confirmed prediction or is that an input? Like, I, I confess, I don't totally understand what you told me, but. Uh, so, yeah. so, okay. So to the best of my knowledge and my knowledge is limited, uh, the paper I found when they were talking about um, having gotten the raw data, the raw data that they listed was a table of dates right? They didn't tell like this piece was dated by Arizona at these coordinates in their sample. And this, this one corresponds to this. So just like, here's a plate of dates. Here's a bowl for Arizona. Here's a bowl for Zurich. Here's a bowl for Oxford. And so uh, if instead though, if it instead, if we had those coordinates, and I don't know if that information even exists, but if we did, but Bob didn't know it. Right. And he was like, here is, here's the whole distribution for all these samples where it should be. And it mapped perfectly onto the uh, the thing, onto the, the coordinates. Basically, yes, that would be a, a, maybe not conclusive, but it would certainly be a piece of confirming evidence. At that point, you would have something. You know, that would be an opportunity for it to be disconfirmed and it wasn't disconfirmed. Okay, that is not nothing for sure. But I don't think we have that. Well, he's working on it right now. He's no, doing... not not Bob's thing. I don't think we know where, like Arizona's date of twelve forty nine. I don't think we know where in Arizona's sample that was. I'm happy to be corrected. It wasn't in the paper I saw. Maybe we do have it. Maybe Bob has it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, he said he needs to confirm with Tristan um, about those details and stuff. So yeah, well, I will look. I just wanted to see that. So that'll be something to look out for when he publishes his results and kind of thing and see what happens. So awesome. But until that happens, I, I still maintain like we're putting a lot of weight on a, on a basically one guy's idea. I mean, it, it's well, a testable idea, but it's an idea that has not yet been tested. Well, bear in mind. Okay. So let me, let me say this then about the car. So remember it, I was clear in my opening presentation, for, forget about Bob Rucker's theory. It's a, it's a great theory and neutron irradiation would help explain all this stuff, but Remember, it is you that has the burden of proof. I don't have to prove that it was neutron irradiated. We have the absolute proof that there is a systematic measurement error. Mm -hmm. We don't, we can't prove what that is empirically at this moment, right? You have your your idea that you think it's based on thing. We, Bob has his idea. Hugh Ferry has his different idea about rogue contamination or something, right? So isn't it, it's on you to prove that it, it, a natural explanation is true before we dismiss another explanation that's consistent with the first century. So I don't think I necessarily need to nail down for certain what it is, okay. but uh, in order for me to say this shows it's not first century, let, let's go with the opposite. Let's say it was first century and we're going to set, let's set Bob Rucker's explanation to the side for now. And mm -hmm. let's say it was first century. How would we get to this? I, it, it seems to me if they, unless they are just lying, like if we go into conspiracy theory stuff, which I don't think anybody thinks, right. Then they oh. measured this, well, okay. Nobody here, at least. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, there's a lot of people out there who believe a lot of things. Uh, but okay. So they measured this this amount of carbon-14. So the question is, how did it get there? 
Now, if it were contamination, that is always a possibility. Perhaps it was just so thoroughly contaminated that it was first century, but it it has so much later contamination that the average of those two things leads you in the 13th century. That is not impossible, but Bob Rucker himself has done math on this, and I haven't checked his math, but I'm going to assume he's right. And uh, the number he came up with is 60% of the carbon would need to be contaminant and not original. And that's a lot of contamination. That's the kind of contamination you could see with a microscope, right? And so, like, it's see, it, I can't say for certain that there isn't some like optically invisible contamination or something, but like that, that's seems like a stretch to me. Hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. Dave. No, no. I was just gonna let you respond, Dale, real quick, and then I was gonna try to shift it a little bit. But... I was, I was just gonna shift it to this to the Sudarium evidence and because I, I am interested. I know Jordan doesn't like it, but I am curious as to what you think. I mean, there have there have been various scientific studies that seem to link the... I, yeah, I, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, he, what I wanted to know before we jump off this, because we're still into the carbon dating thing, is, is you know, Dale, you gave uh, some undercutting defeaters, and I just wanted to know what Jordan thought about those undercutting defeaters. Which defeater? The ones he presented, the, the five he presented. I know he focused on the two, well, um, but okay, let me bring that up. We've been yeah. focusing on about the statistical one, right? So that, that, yeah, you know, we've been talking well, about the whole time. But, yeah, the, what, what's the other one? That's the one I was undercover thinking of feeders. Uh, okay, um, so conspiracy theories or measurement fraud. Uh, the general unreliability of AMS carbon-14 dating with linen specifically, uh, only one sample. This is the invisible reweave, like that kind of evidence. And then this is the one we've been talking about, like Bob Rucker. And where does this idea of beta analytics, uh, these guys from Florida, where does that uh, come in? I think it would be under this. Yeah, it'd be number two kind of thing, right? Because okay. they're, they're basically saying, look, we would never carbon date anything um unless it's a, a textile unless it's a part of a multidisciplinary thing they don't give this warning for anything when carbonating wood bone they don't give that warning it's only with textiles they do and this is the top lab in the world so that there's something there right i think so okay so it's always important to understand the limitations of any uh dating method before you use it for instance you can't use radiocarbon dating to date the shells of like freshwater snails because of the reservoir effect i won't go into what that is you just, it doesn't get its, its c14 from the atmosphere okay so you can't do it right what about heart-shaped stones <laughs> just uh, joking. You, well, that's <laughs> an inside joke <laughs> those i guess i guess under that guy's hypothesis they were biological so i don't know uh <laughs> That's insane. Someone can super chat and I'll tell you all about it. Uh, but in any case, um, so I would imagine, and I'm not them. I haven't read that statement, so I can't say for sure. But I would imagine the thing they're envisioning is linen could easily be contaminated by other things because it would readily absorb stuff. It might be hard to clean. And so uh, for that reason, their results might not be as reliable as they otherwise would be. And I concede, like, I'm not going to say that the shroud was from 1260 because the radiocarbon dating said so. I don't think I can know that for sure. All I'm relying on, I'm not relying on it to say it was from this year. I'm relying on it to say it was not 1,200 years earlier, right? And I feel confident saying that only because the level of contamination that would be required would be exorbitant. Like, it, yeah, it, it, I, I, it, I, if the dating had been like, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. If the dating had been like, it, it dated to 200, 
okay, I, I could see how you get there with contamination, right? But 1,200 seems too far to go with just contamination. Yeah, when, when it's contamination, so I, I should clarify, right? What Jordan's meaning by contamination, he's talking about ordinary contamination. So this was one of the original things, right? So some people would argue for a bioplastic coating or like smoke or uh, tallow or wax and stuff. These kinds of ordinary contamination, it's been scientifically falsified. Like you could never get a first century date up to the medieval period or the Shroud of Turin, num number one, it would be like double the weight. It would be extremely noticeably heavy. And in fact, it's quite light. Uh, also, it'd be very brittle if you have like a bioplastic coating, whereas the Shroud is remarkably, almost, I would even argue, potentially supernaturally flexible and pliable. Maybe I'm going too far with the supernatural stuff, but it it feels like a t-shirt. That even Whether the Shroud is medieval or 2,000 years old, that's remarkable. Most textiles are more brittle or, or decomposed or they're not as in good condition as the shroud. So I would buy a shroud of turn t-shirt for sure. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I've been having issues with uh, Tyler and Teddy about um, idolatry and, and veneration of images. So <laughs> maybe hold off on the shirts. No so, one. okay. Uh, <laughs> were you, so, so ordinary contamination out, is there like some other kind of contamination you're envisioning? Yeah, so there are uh, at least two forms of extraordinary contamination that have been proposed to date, right? So the other is car Dr. John Jackson came up with carbon monoxide, and this was scientifically tested in 2008, and it was falsified. That that would be a form of extraordinary contamination, but we know that's not what happened. So the only one left is neutron, neutron absorption, Bob Rucker's uh, stuff. That's the other viable extraordinary contamination uh, theory. Okay. So it seems if if Bob Ruck, uh, if we say that Bob Rucker's hypothesis set it to the side, it doesn't seem like there's any other explanation on offer. It seems like it, it seems like if it's not Bob Rucker, then we should at least provisionally say that it is medieval. I don't know because even you were saying like maybe it's a Gaga particle, you know, something. Uh, maybe an it's a I'm sorry. I'm just making up stuff, a Gaga oh, okay. article that contamination, right? Like we, just because Bob Rucker's neutron irradiation isn't the mechanism, that doesn't mean, oh, okay, well, there's got to be some normal natural mechanism that is consistent with a medieval date. May, it could be an unknown thing that is consistent with a first century date, right? So ruling out Bob's wouldn't prove that, okay, well, it's not first century. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. It could be some other kind of exotic unknown particle with, properties that aren't clear like but that's the case for anything right like you could if you want to you can invoke mysterious physics to explain just about anything you wanted but it's not a question of can you have an explanation for this it's what's the most plausible explanation with the fewest uh ontological commitments and that's fancy speak for like the fewest things you have to believe in order to accept the thing right mm -hmm. and so I, I know you know what that is i'm just saying for the for the audience uh, i try not to use too big of words. So yeah. for other fellow engineers like myself. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and it seems to me at that point, you would be, you'd, you'd be having to believe a lot without any reason to believe it. Now that doesn't mean that you can never change your mind again. If new evidence shows up, you could say, okay, provisionally, I'm going to say it's medieval, but then we find that Daga particle. Okay. Well, you can change your mind now, but like in the meantime, yeah. you should probably go with medieval. Yeah, I think I, I would fully agree with what you just said if it's a random thing, right? So obviously this is where the totality of the evidence comes in. It, it's a lot more plausible to consider just for the sake of our, the, you know, for joking, the Gaga particle or whatever. 
or a supernatural unknown mechanism when we do have evidence that the images are miraculous and we're factoring that in. And so when it's when it's not in explanatory isolation, um, that might change the thing. But when it's an explanatory isolation, just the carbon 14, and we're just considering randomly that some unknown thing. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying is right. We would prefer the naturalistic thing in a random context type thing. So, yeah. All right, cool. I, are you good, David, to move on to the sudarium? Because I literally do want to Absolutely. Absolutely. Knock it out, guys. Because I, I pretty much got a lot of the questions I wanted addressed. So the sudarium is it, I think. All right, cool. Uh, yeah, Jordan, so I, I guess I'll just... Uh, I, I don't know how much you studied. Was there anything that you found interesting or like convincing or that you want to challenge or? Um, well, I do have some questions because I haven't looked into the sedarium as much as I have even the shroud. Uh, so when I was looking at the work that had been done on the sedarium and I can only read English, so that's a failing of mine, right? Yeah. Uh, but if it's not English, it's not science, right? So <laughs> okay, I agree. Come on. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, no, no American chauvinism here. Spanish science is just fine. But in any case, uh, I is there much in the way of peer-reviewed evidence about the sudarium? I saw a lot of like stuff being written by professional scientists, but like I didn't see much that was peer-reviewed. Did, did no. you have a different experience? Yeah, there, there are well, not not totally different, but there is there are a few uh, peer-reviewed journals on the study of the sudarium for sure, right? Um, and I think I even linked to some of them in my blogs. So, you know, for example, that x-ray fluorescence thing, I, I had uh, Dr. Caesar Barta on my show, right? So this a 2015 okay. paper and yeah. Yeah. Um, so he was explaining that um, as well. Uh, the, I think the morphological study, I need to look into it, but yeah, the answer is yes, there, there are. Cause I didn't find a whole lot. I found there was some and the x-ray I had seen that I forgot about that. The x-ray one, I don't want to, I'm not going to, I'm going to resist the temptation to dive back into dating methods. I don't find the x-ray thing very compelling for the reason that it's a novel technique that was, it's, it's new in the realm of techniques. Um, and if it's the same one I'm thinking of, uh, it is measuring the damage of the cloth over time. Is oh, that right? No. So, okay. So a different one. You're, you're thinking of Julia Fonte's x-ray dating. So this was another, this is another, uh, we have okay. five empirical dating techniques that, date the shroud of the first century kind of thing, right? X-ray dating is one that Julio Fonte worked on, but I, I'm talking about X-ray fluorescence, a spectral test. They they detected the the ratio of the limestone dust at the tip. Okay, got it, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so yeah, I did see that one. That one is a paper I did find and had some notes on. So uh, we can talk about the limestone since you just mentioned it. Sure. Uh, it the paper itself is um, a new coincidence between Shroud of Turn and Sidarium of Oviedo. That's the paper. Um, I think we're talking about here. And like you said, they measure the calcium uh, content of the limestone in the sudarium and compare that uh, to calvary in, uh, and also the shroud, right? Yeah. Um, and they the, the headline basically is that it matches, right? Yeah. So in point of fact, though, the, uh, so they measure the, the ratio of strontium to calcium is what they measured. Um, and it's um, the, the units don't matter. The relative units is what matters. So I'm not going to get into the scientific notation. It doesn't matter. The important thing is uh, they measured the, cath the cathedral limestone, the limestone of the cathedral that it's stored in. That was 2.43. The sudarium 
the stained area measured to 0.63 and Calvary measured to 0.24, right? Now, it is a true statement that 0.63 is closer to 0.24 than it is to 2.43. It's a lot of numbers. The Sudarium's limestone is closer in strontium to calcium to Calvary than it is to the cathedral. Now, I don't have a citation for this, but I'm fairly confident there are more sources of limestone in the world than Calvary and the thing. Citation needed, but I think that's fair, right? Yeah. And so far as I know, they didn't test anything. So I, as a layman, I have no idea what the strontium to calcium ratio is normally. Is it normally 0.63? Is it normally 0.04? Is it normally 10? I don't know. Uh, and they didn't tell me. And so far, like, it... <laughs> I, I struggle to find this very compelling because I have no idea what I should expect. I have no idea if this is anything unusual, right? Yeah. Well, so so this is an objection Hugh Ferry raises, right? And thankfully, um, Hugh Ferry does cite another study totally separate from the Shroud done in southern Spain. And the ratios there were much more, they, again, they're off, but they're much closer than in Oviedo or northern Spain where they did it. So we have at least that data, but you are absolutely right. They, they didn't test other area, like what about North Africa? What would we get there and, and stuff like that? Um, now, the reasoning for that, though, like I asked Cesar Barta about that on my show, and he, he was saying, well, look, the Sudarium has a known history. It was sealed in this arc uh, kind of thing. So it, it wouldn't have been contaminated in North Africa or any other areas. And we know that the limestone is uh, comes from where it was originally uh, on the from the tip of the nose is where this remarkable finding was, right? So uh he's saying that this is not this doesn't affect um or is not a factor because we don't have to worry about later contamination given what we know historically about it so that's his answer that seems to be begging the question though i mean if you assume that the sudarium's history is as we we know it or is as it is reported then this right but that's one begging the question that that is correct and it's also uh doesn't say anything about what happened to it before then like th that seems like a big like like thing to just swallow and just say okay that seems like a big shortcoming of that research Let me, if, if you don't mind me being awkward for like a couple minutes i can look it up because i remember he said there's three different things and the this finding is particular to the original um if you don't mind me just being awkward and looking that up or i don't know sure and uh while you're doing that i can talk since we mentioned the history so the history is i understand it uh, the first mention that we get is from 570, like you said. This it was an anonymous pilgrim who is like talking about all his his all the things he did, and he mentions kind of, almost offhand. It's like one sentence that uh, the face covering of Jesus is in this cave too, and then he he goes on, or it is said to be in this cave. Now, is that face covering our face covering? As far as I can tell, the guy never even saw it. So that it. it we don't know that it is. We don't know that it isn't. Maybe it is, but we don't know that. After that, the next mention we get is uh, 11th century, I think. Now, to be fair, in the 11th century, there's like four or five people. There's there's several people who recount stories of how it came from Jerusalem to Spain. And there's differences on timing, the exact route it took, like the years they're off. I mean, they're giving history from six or 700 years before them at that point. But um, in order for their accounts to accord with the radiocarbon dating they say like somewhere around the late 600s that's that, that's pretty well i mean it's a little bit earlier than the radiocarbon dating but it's not that far off and so about the time that we get like a clear mention 
of the Shroud of, uh, of sorry, not the Shroud of Darn, of the Storm of Oviedo. That's a, pretty much when it Radio Carbon dates. So it doesn't seem, I don't know, it doesn't seem like that history is that much of a defeater yeah. to the Radio Carbon dating. Well, as, as Dale continues to look this up, I am I've, going to compliment both my guests on their awesomeness. They've done really well tonight. Thanks, guys, for having such a great conversation. Jordan, I do got to say, I do got to say, I loved your old background better. The sheet is not doing it for me. I like the kids' drawings. I like the, <laughs> the, that you showed that you were Mr. Dad <laughs> from yeah, Virginia I, because we're Virginians. I, uh, but no, I did I, love that. I do this for those said people because, like, that you they're like walking around in the background so it lets them like not be exiled away from that i'm in the middle living room like i'm in, like, oh, in the middle man. of the house so oh, it's very man. awkward yeah. when before the sheet was up but yeah no I, yeah i just I, I loved it man but anyways go ahead dale okay yeah so so just on the x-ray fluorescence yeah i was right so he says look they can differentiate three types of con conservation of the relics so they can determine which kind from original use uh, or during its veneration as a relic, and also during its veneration after the 13th century. Um, and this is basically primarily on the historical records. So Mark Guskin is a world's expert. He is a historian spe specializing in the Sidarium of Oviedo. And, you know, I've he's been on the show before, and I've linked to shows where he goes over all the original documents. So we have multiple independent attestation for this story. It's not just one story that they that they have and there are dip like in the gospels there are slight differences in that sort of thing but there is this general agreement so i would say that it's it's not just oh you just have one document so like how do we know if that's true or not there there is some criteria of authenticity that apply to the historicity of the sidarium and that's why most people not even shroud skeptics like hugh ferry would really dispute that the sidarium does go back and, and stuff uh like this so so I, I agree that there's multiple sources. Am I correct in saying that aside from that anonymous pilgrim, that those sources are 11th century, 12th century in that time frame? Is that correct? No, I think he mentions uh, other that's ones. The, I was looking at Gu Guskin's uh, post recent historical investigations on the Shroud of Oviedo, where he talks about um, the various accounts and like their differences and similarities, and he kind of constructs a model from the aggregate of those. Um, it's it's possible I missed it. I'm a fallible person, uh, so maybe there's something in here that isn't 11th century. But it seemed like they were all like 1100 or later. Gotcha. I I, I seem to remember one that was earlier or something talking about uh, traveling around the Mediterranean is how it was saying the the journey went there. But okay, again, what? Yeah, if, for if it is, I I agree it's multiply att att attested. So I'm not even like. I mean, the radiocarbon dating says it's from 700-ish, right? Exactly. So, I mean, like, I would certainly not sit, not object to that. It, it, what I, I guess the point I'm making is that it seems like these sources are telling us a history that goes back to 600, 700s area, right? They, they kind of differ on the dates. It's understandable. I mean, it doesn't mean anyone... They're, they're recording history centuries later, right? So they're going to get a couple things wrong. That's, that's no problem. Okay. Uh, but, like, it seems to not be that far off of the radiocarbon dating. The one outlier, perhaps, is the 570 uh, date from that anonymous pilgrim. But again, we don't know that what they were talking about. It, it, he says it's a face cloth of Jesus. But, I mean, we, we all know that there were plenty of fake relics of Jesus floating around the Middle Ages, right? That's uh, true. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it, it's entirely possible. This pilgrim went to a place and they had a face covering of Jesus in this cave over there. 
that doesn't mean that it was our face covering of Jesus. You know? Gotcha. Yeah. And like I said, I can't, I can't really prove beyond that, that first instance that I do think is historical. I, I can't prove it did go back to first century. And so fair point. Um, all right. Well, I really want to ask you about the forensic links though, with the blood stains, um, and especially, yeah. Like what's your take on those in, in general? So, um, I, I looked and I couldn't find any experts who had like examined this, like, like not, not the experts who I did the publishing, but like other experts critiquing it basically. Um, I, I couldn't find that. Uh, so it's hard. For, I'm always, I try not to speak to, without any basis whatsoever outside of things that I understand. I definitely have, I have no idea how blood forensics works, so I can't really yeah. assess the evidence. It seems to me just looking at it, uh, like, first of all, you have to like manipulate the cloth a lot because it was like wrapped around a head. So like there's perhaps some subjectivity about how you would match those up. And while you, you might be able to say that this splotch is kind of like this splotch, I mean, they're, it, they're not, and you wouldn't expect them to match exactly, but they don't match exactly. Yeah. I mean, even if it were true, they wouldn't match exactly. But the point still remains that, you know, two two people, basically, you could have two different people bleeding on the Shroud of Turn and bleeding on the Sidarium and get and get blood, tongue tied, get blood spatter or whatever that looks kind of similar, or you could get the same person to get it look kind of similar. So, like, it's not nothing. I don't have a defeater for it because I, I honestly haven't found any contrary evidence, so... Fair enough. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll kind of provide that like back and forth quickly. So you're absolutely right, right? Like, so what, what would Hugh Ferry reject? And he obviously says, look, it's not a perfect fit in the first place, which, which is true. And we wouldn't expect it because these cloths were, you know, by perfect fit, we mean like if you lay it out flat and then do a, an overlay technique or a superimposition image, there are differences in the bloodstains. But the, the forensic experts, like the two I mentioned here, they're saying, but it's sufficiently similar where we can conclude it covered the same person despite the differences. Now, I like that Jordan mentions this, and this is absolutely true. The, all, even the pro shroud forensic experts do admit that some different faces can and do produce similar stains on different cloths at times. But it, the real counter here is it's the degree to which, right? Um, that causes these forensic experts to say, no, these, this definitely covered the same corpse. So, so for example, with Cesar Barda, he did actual experimental studies using uh, computer simulation analysis and his own daughter. So, uh, yep, uh, sorry for her. Hopefully it went well. But um, And he found that, look, with the crown of thorns, for example, there is a extremely high percentage, around 75% of correspondence with the crown of thorns blood thing, right? So that well, that's incredible oh. can i sorry i i hate it when people interrupt me and i just interrupted you i'm sorry no no Please problem this is that. a great great talk so go ahead i was just curious do you have in your presentation a picture of the sudarium because we've shown a picture of the shroud but i don't know that everybody watching has seen the sudarium if uh, you don't I, if you don't i do okay yeah show show yours because yeah I, I didn't include a picture i just assumed sure. yeah I know before you mentioned it, I had never even heard of the Sidarium of Oviedo. So, uh, awesome. Thank so you. Here, for sure thing. So, here is a picture. If you'll, uh, th that is what the Sidarium of Oviedo looks like. Um, make it bigger, perhaps. There it is. So, yeah, this, this is what the rag looks like. Now, they, I think this, if I remember right, this is the area they say 
like was on the front of Jesus' face. Is that right? I'm kind of quoting from memory here. One of um, these two is like the primary. The, this, so this right here would be like the tip of the nose type deal, right? And yeah. if you want, it, it was it was folded in a weird way. Like it, if you want, I can play like my video for people if you want to see how it was folded because it's a precise way that it was folded. And the reason it wasn't just like wrapped around the head because one of the arms has been proven to like block it. So they had to like fold it and then like refold it back around itself and then pin it with bone pins, which is what locked the ponytail on the shroud man in, in place. And, but yeah, like it's up to you guys. If you guys want me to show like Caesar's 10 minute video there, but yeah. It's up now, to you. So okay. uh, I'm not an expert in blood spatters. So the way, the way I would assess this is like, okay, let's say, that this blood satter analysis, they're kind of fuzzy, but they, they kind of match and maybe it's the same person or whatever. Like, so on the one hand, I've got these blood spatter guys looking at this kind of fuzzy, the, the faint image on the shroud. And then some blood spatters don't really make a clear image, but there's blood spatters on there and they're saying they match. And I've got that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I have two radiocarbon dates that tell me that these are centuries apart with no real good. Like if, if that was all I had, I'm going to have to go with the radiocarbon dating, you know, uh, that's really where I stand on it. Okay. Um, now I think I saw in your presentation, the blood type thing, cause that's come up before I did that. The reason, so I had it in red ink, if you want me to pull it up, uh, because that I think we can't, we can't prove that it's human blood or that it's type AB anymore. I, I go with Kelly Kiris's take on that. So, I, I included it because that's one of the claims in the literature, but it's to my mind, it, it's we can't prove it at this point. Okay, fair enough. Um, what, what did you make of this half blood stain? Because this is something that I found very persuasive on my end. Um, so at the end of the day, what you have here is you have a blood stain with you know a hole in it, and then on the sudarium, you've got a blood stain about the same size, but I mean, like. I don't know. It's just, I, like I see all these people like like w w making so much of this, and I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just biased. I don't know, but I, it just doesn't seem like that. <laughs> it, it seems like it, it seems like a lot of like looking for patterns where they're. It, okay. If they if they were two different people, I don't think it would be that crazy for you to have a blood stain that looks kind of like a hole, and then for this other one to have a dot. Well, I, I, I think it's also like the relative location because it, the sedarium, even though I don't have a picture of it, it has the corresponding epsilon. This is called the epsilon wound on the forehead. It's like a reverse three type thing. So it, it has a thing that fits into this. Then with this little blood drop right underneath, they also have this corresponding half blood stain that fits. So I think the, the context of the location also helps provide it. It's not like, oh, well, you have a small dot, then you have a donut thing. So like, well, there's more to it, I think. That's assuming that the people who publish on it are correct in the orientation and how it maps from one to the other. Um, so it's conditional on them being correct in the positioning. And then also you've got this overlap. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Um, I don't know anything about the pollen uh, thing. That's more related to dating the sudarium. Right. So... Uh, Pollen gets thrown about a lot when you're talking about the shroud or the starium or anything related to it. And uh, you you said it, so um, that they don't go down. But aside from Max Frey, who did try to go down to the very specific species, and I don't think most botanists agree that you can do that reliably. Um, 
you went down to the genus and you point to that being in burial oils and stuff, but that's not the only context in which those things existed. Right. So like though, though that genus of pollen exists in other contexts and other areas, it's not unique to Palestine. It's not unique to the first century. And so it doesn't seem diagnostic of it being pre third century or being Palestinian for that matter. Well, well, don't forget. So this pollen grain is entrenched in the the blood kind of thing. So we know it got on there originally. It's not later contamination. Okay. We we also know that this is um, a, a specific. Oh, son of a gun! This is a specific type. It's I don't know how to say this. Entomophilus. It, this just means look. This is spread through insect pollination or something like that. It it's not spread through the wind, right? So it's not something that could just blow onto the shroud. It was okay. something that was deliberately put onto it entrenched in the blood stains and obviously this i'm assuming you agree the sudarium did cover a, a, a dead corpse or a, a head of a human being it's not artwork like you may think the shroud is right i don't know but i'm happy to concede that for the purposes of this discussion okay so so if that's the case then i think the most reasonable explanation is look this was used to cover a, a bloody dead head and in that context the fact that these botanical pollen grains were put there deliberately uh, and they were happened to correspond to certain resins, gums, and oils that were only used up to the great crisis of the Roman Empire or earlier, I think the most likely explanation is to go, yeah, it was put on as part of a burial uh, custom or something like that. Um, yeah, I'd have, I, I don't know whether, I don't know about the whole burial custom thing. I'd have to look into that. Um, I do know that the Rome, it's not like the Roman Empire disintegrated overnight. And I mean, half the Roman Empire existed until like damn near, you know, millennia afterwards. Forever. <laughs> We're still uh, looking for the lost fifth legion. <laughs> well, see, see, and I don't know if you know Roman history, it's a hobby, but like, in the I third love some Roman history. There you go. So, you know, about the great crisis in the third century. This is when classical antiquity ended, right? So, and um, basically the, the empire was being attacked by barbarians. It was falling apart. The, you had the soldiers kind of killing all the emperors. So because of this chaos for about half a century during the 200s AD, there was drastic changes to the Roman culture and way of life that led it to what we call late antiquity. So the this particular burial custom we do know was stopped, stopped being used after well, this period. It seems like, so you're assuming that the way this pollen got on there is as part of a burial custom. And so if you are correct that this pollen got on there as part of a burial custom and that custom ended in the third century, then that would be a piece of, of evidence. It wouldn't be conclusive, but it would be a piece of evidence, right? Yep. Um, but so that's what I'm saying. It's not conclusive. It is a piece of evidence in one column. I don't think it's dispositive. I don't think it's like, I, I, don't, I don't feel forced to conclude that it's pre-third century because of this. Um, and given its history, the only history we know starts in the seventh century, uh, and that's where the date, the radiocarbon dating is. And it, it would be one thing, say, for instance, we knew this pollen ceased to exist after the third century, like if for some somehow we knew that. Well, then sh it's showing up prior to that. Like that would be good evidence, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not the that's not the reality we live in. Right oh, on. And Tell I just want to point out, uh, mm -hmm. yes. How much yes, I like, you had no, uh, you had the last response, so go ahead. That's SPQR right there. That's how much I like <laughs> Roman history. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because you were a soldier and that's this natural uh leading towards stuff like that. So, but no, <laughs> thank you for your service too. Um, 
guys, this like that's everything great. on mine. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, and, and I, I, we do have some audience questions, which I want to get to after you guys give a quick closing. Tyler, do you have anything, buddy? No, nah, I mean, I've enjoyed the discussion. Uh, we are, I think, two hours worth of gold here, guys. And so I love the way you've interacted with each other. And uh, I do want to get to the audience questions, but I do want to give uh, you guys closing statements as well. So if you're thinking uh, of questions, our audience, please get them to us. Put either at Faith Unaltered uh, before your question or at Real Seekers. Also, if you would like to give a super chat, this will be the last time that I promote it. Uh, go to the Faith Unaltered channel. You cannot do it from Real Seekers. So if you would like to help us fund our channel, go to Faith Unaltered and you can send us a super chat from our YouTube channel. But uh, Dale, we'll start with you. Yeah. So I, I just want to say thank you so much again. Like this, not even, you know, giving BS to flatter people. This was a great conversation. I, I knew it would be from watching Jordan's videos. I, I disagree with some of his take, but I, I, especially because this is new, I think he did a great job. So I'm going to be linking to his videos in my blog. Please watch them. And as well, uh, Bob Rucker wrote a 23 page response to uh, all of the points that Jordan made. So go to my blog and read Bob Rucker's response to all of that as well. So yeah, this was a great conversation. Look, we, I think we were working together mostly trying to figure out what's true. We, we conceded points in fairness to truth. It wasn't all about, Oh, I've got to win at all costs. So I love this conversation. I thought it was great. Right on, right on. Thank you for that. Dell and Jordan. Uh, yeah. So at the bottom, under the chat where you've been asking where you super chat right under the S for say something, there's a little dollar bill. It's got the money sign on it. That's where you super chat. So uh, anyway, so that's, that. that's some instruction there and in how you uh, throw money to get your question to the top. So I agree with everything Dell just said. And since he already talked about how awesome everybody was, I'm going to talk about something else. Uh, I think that skepticism is super important. I think uh, that the world would be a better place if people are more skeptical and just basically required evidence for claims. And so I think the right approach to this is to try to set aside what we would like to be true and just focus on what the evidence tells us. Uh, even if the Shroud of Turin is not the authentic burial shroud of Jesus, even if it's not miraculous, it doesn't mean God didn't exist. doesn't mean the Bible suddenly poofs away and disappears. So I don't think anybody is like, should be committed to one side or the other. We can just look at the evidence as it appears. And the evidence that we have um, are that the only firm scientific methods we have to, to date things tell us that it is not first century. They have flaws, as we've discussed at length. But I think that the balance of the evidence is to this not being the authentic shroud of Jesus. And so that's why, why I believe that. All right. Thank you so much, Jordan. Guys, we will go ahead and transition into the last segment of the uh, debate, uh, and that will be our audience questions. And so the very first one we have is from Antangelo Grasso, and he asked, Real Seekers question to Jordan, how did the artist make this image? Uh, well, I don't. Um, I'm not committed to the artist hypothesis. I mean, it might be true. It might not be. Um, I don't know how the image was made. Uh, we talk about this uh, shameless plug in episode three of the thing we did, if you want to see my thoughts on it. But the conclusion is like, maybe it was two. I know, one of them. Watch all three, then you'll find out. Uh, but like, <laughs> I, I don't know how the image was made. But critically, I don't know 
doesn't mean, therefore, I do know, and it was this. I don't know means and only can mean I don't know. Fair enough. Dill, any follow-up to that? Yeah, I think, uh, okay, so I think it's fair enough. Yeah, if you say that you don't know, that's that's fair enough. You got to be honest and, and not try to make stuff up and that sort of thing. One thing I, I would just clarify, when he says artist, that doesn't necessarily mean like a traditional painting. Like it could be an artist. So did you mean it in the wider sense with your answer or were you specifically talking about painting? Yeah, I think so. One of the things I was surprised at when I looked into the shroud was uh, the good evidence against like a, like a brush painting. Uh, I think that the, the lack of meniscus marks, the lack of flooding, the lack of things being glued together. Like I think that there's strong evidence that this was not like a artist dipping his paintbrush. Yeah. Like I don't think that, I think that's pretty much disconfirmed. Um, now, is there some other extremely clever way an artist might have done it? I don't know. Uh, but yeah. I, so that that's what I meant when I said I'm, I'm not committed to the artist thing. The artist, like, with a paintbrush thing, I think that's... Fair enough. Yeah, yeah and there's I, good evidence against that. I guess, yeah, so just giving my sort of take, I, I would also concur with all the other known artistic methods, whether it's powder rubbing or a, a dusting technique. I saw in Jordan's comments what someone talked about. Uh, Breezy and Craig's dusting technique, the, these all have similar problems. A scorching method, whether you look at uh, Colin Berry's toastograph hypothesis or, you know, one of the Delfino's uh, things, um, or even a proto photograph like Nicholas Allen uh, gives his, it was a primitive photograph type thing. Um, I think that these all have similar problems where they have been scientifically falsified. They They can't explain all of the shrouds physical and chemical properties so yeah we can rule them all out i would say okay right on right on all righty uh so the next one isn't necessarily a question it's more of a statement but it uh made me come up with a question and so our good friend teddy says the shroud of course has sustained water damage on two separate occasions and been in a in two fires a lot worse than smoking near a sample uh, to be tested. And so a little bit of background, she had commented before this uh, that you want to keep these test uh, subjects clean. Uh, like you guys talked about earlier, there's very extensive cleaning that goes into. And so what made me think of a question uh, was Teddy's comment. And so my question is to both of you guys, um, Dale, I'll ask you and then Jordan, if you'd like to follow up uh, to that, that would be uh, great. But given the fact that there has been significant damage, it seems like, to this uh, shroud. Would that affect the carbon dating results that we that we have? Um, yeah, well, obviously, it depends where the sample location came and what came from and what treatment that that had. Obviously, there has been some findings that that area has been affected. And, you know, I was talking to Pam Moon the other day and she was she actually went to the Oxford Oxford Labs and, and got access to their photos. And there there is a difference. There is stuff on it. There is some kind of contamination. Even uh, Walter McCrone and, and others have confirmed that. Now, the main question for me is, are the clean, were the cleaning processes that used sufficient to take care of that so that it wouldn't be an issue? And, you know, obviously people who believe in the invisible reweave, Teddy herself, she she will want to say, no, it was insufficient. Bob Rucker, on the other hand, would say, no, it was sufficient. They, they, even Oxford, they put it in sulfuric acid and other acid, and 
to the point where 50% of the material of these fibers was gone, uh, to Bob's mind, that gets rid of the contamination. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I don't know exactly where I stand. I, I guess because I lean in Bob's favor, I would lean in that direction, but I'm not certain. Like um, there, there are findings of contamination in the carbon-14 sample. So it's just a question. Do you think the cleaning process was sufficient or not? Okay. Jordan? So uh, the smoking thing, it, it's possible that the smoke from the fires deposited some contaminant onto the shroud. So like it's in a smoke, some of the smoke gets entrained in the, the fabric. But uh, you, come, you come back to the quantity that would be needed. So it's not that I'm saying that there is no contamination. Of course there's contamination. Like this thing has been fondled by people for centuries, right? Of course there's yeah. contamination. The question is, uh, did the cleaning procedures take apart? And how much would the cleaning procedures need to miss in order to turn a first century cloth into a 14th century cloth? And the answer is an truly baffling amount, right? Like you'd have to be accusing them of incompetence on the highest order to okay. get get that much. So the smoke specifically, Bob Rutgers looked at that and I think, quoting from memory, I think it was 80% of the carbon would have to be from the smoke and not oh, wow. as opposed to the like, So there what you're saying is there would have to be some serious neglect on the part of the people can, uh, cleaning this yeah, piece of fabric. Yeah. So I, okay. I agree. So the problem, as as I understand it, the problem with the smoke would be that it would be depositing carbon into the thing in a way that would be hard to get out. And I'm not saying that that didn't happen. I'm not saying that because the bottom age of the shroud is 1190-something, that that doesn't mean it wasn't made in 1150. I'm just okay. saying it wasn't first century. That's all I'm saying. Okay, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So you guys touched on this next question uh, a little bit. If you want to skip it, uh, I, I think you guys gave significant uh, answers to this. Or if there's something else you would like to add that maybe you thought of, you know, since that time, uh, feel free at this point. But SJ uh, says, how do you explain the and vanillin, uh, pollen, burial ointments and limestone from the first century uh, Jerusalem, Jordan? Uh, yes, yeah, so we talked about the pollen and the yes. burial ointments and the limestone. The vanillin we haven't mentioned. So okay. uh, Ray Rogers uh, was a shroud skeptic who firmly believed, uh, after being persuaded by uh, Joe Marino uh, and his wife, that uh, the invisible reweave hypothesis was correct, and he published some papers about it. And one of the things that he published uh, had to do with uh, the amount of vanillin on the shroud, namely that there wasn't any. Uh, and the vanillin is a volatile compound. You know it from vanilla. And um, <clears throat> basically, his argument was that uh, the amount of time since the 14th century would be insufficient to remove all of this vanillin, right? And so therefore, because there's some vanillin left, uh, I, I believe, I'm not going to try to quote the percentages. I'm not going to remember them. But the point is there's some vanillin there, there should be some vanilla for 14th century. There is none. Therefore, it's not 14th century. That's his argument. Now, how uh, how I would answer that, I talked about this in first episode, shameless plug. Uh, so the pro there's a lot of problems with this. First of all, um, it is strongly sensitive to heat. The, the amount of heat this thing has been exposed to over time um, has a huge impact on the rate that this vanilla goes away at. And this thing's been exposed to two fires. Now, he tries to answer this, and he believes that the insulating property of linen is sufficient to, that that wouldn't be a concern. But, I mean, this is something you can't just ignore. Not to mention the fact that um, there's issues with the, that 
the chemical treatments that have been happened, differing chemical treatments from the different samples he looked at. I don't think it's as straightforward as saying there is no vanillin. There must be vanillin. Therefore, it's 14th century. Gotcha. Dale? Yes, yeah, so I, I think Jordan did a, a great job kind of summarizing what uh, this was a finding by Ray Rogers. Um, he also kind of he compared the shroud textile to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and apparently they were on a microchemical level similar on this basis. I, I don't use this argument myself. Uh, I've heard a lot of criticisms um, that I haven't been able to find answers to myself. So I, I tend not to use this. Now, I am partial to Giulio Fontes because this is one of the five empirical dating methods that allegedly show that the shroud is first century. Um, and there are four other ones by Fonte. And I do think on a balance of probabilities, I'm I'm partial to them. I know that Jordan mentioned they're new, but I don't think that that alone says anything. I mean, they used dozens of control samples and that sort of thing. If you believe the carbon the carbon dating was new, it was only ten years old when they dated the shroud. It, it was AMS, right? So just because it's new, that doesn't mean anything, especially when they have control samples. And think about it with Giulio Fonte. He he's got four different methods based on the the in a nutshell, the degradation of the, the shroud textile, right? It, it degrades in various ways over the, the centuries, and that's how you can kind of date it, he's trying to say, right? Um, but what's the, what are the odds that all of these things, if, if it is just some unreliable method and it happened to get a first century date, why would all four just happen to overlap and be erroneously overlap in the first century? That That seems like we're just trying to dismiss the data I, I think that there's something there and you know fonte allows for oh do you want me to do you want to talk jordan or? No, finish what you're saying please he allows for very wide uncertainty levels we're talking on the order of 400 to 500 years so he he's allowing for a lot of flexibility because his methods haven't you know the, those um calibration curves you know they haven't been tested on lots of things um, he tested about a dozen. So we need more to have the certainties better. But even if you allow the plus or minus 500 years or whatever, that's not medieval. It can't be medieval. So yeah, I think there's something to that. Uh, in terms of the pollen, barrel ointments and limestone, we, we've kind of covered that stuff. The, the one thing I would say is that I don't, even if you grant everything I said about these things, none of that proves it's first century. It, it's consistent with the first century, but there's nothing about the barrel ointments that proves, oh, well, it is zero to, you know, 180 to 100 AD. Um, so yeah, I'm not sure what you mean about that, but yeah. Can I respond to the dating thing real briefly? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Uh, so it's true. So it being new does not in and of itself mean it is false. However, what it does mean is it's not tested. It hasn't been vetted. And uh, radiocarbon dating is a good example. Over the decades, scientists have found regions where it doesn't work. We They discovered the reservoir effect. So now we know that if we get, I mean, you can test a, a snail that like you killed yesterday and it'll date to like a thousand years ago, right? It just doesn't work in that region. And that kind of testing hasn't been done with these new methods. They are an interesting idea. And perhaps these methods will be vetted future as carbon dating has now been vetted to now. And it'll, uh, it will come up with things that retroactively mean his results were good, right? But I don't think that we should 
overthrow a extremely well-established and well-understood method for a novel one that was created essentially to measure the shroud. It, the thing, degradation could come from all kinds of sources. It has to do with the storage temperature, it has to do with the acidity, it has to do with the humidity, it has to do with all kinds of things that could be confounding factors. And I, just, I think it's premature to, uh, to rely on them. One thing, Jordan, if you don't mind me, just a quick question on this, because um, I find it interesting. So with the cumulative effect, right? So one of my main criticisms here about the carbon dating is we provably do not have this 95 required 95% degree of, of, uh, super, of uh, certainty because of the, the, you know, because of this issue and stuff like that about the new dates and stuff. But on the other hand, with Giulio Fonte, when he gets the combined, all four of his methods combined, we do arrive at a 95% degree cert, uh, of certainty that within those wide uncertainty levels, it does date that way. So like, what do you make of this 95% degree of confidence that he, he claims all of his methods cumulatively allow us to say? Do you, what do you think on that? I'm not very impressed with brand new methods that were invented just for the shroud coming to the answer that it's authentic like that's okay that's not that impressive to me should the the literature should the people in the field the experts of the field take his research vet it and authenticate it like okay he comes at this 95 confidence level how confident should we be in his confidence level we don't know what his calibration curves are we don't know like how did he arrive at this this kind of error these sort of things are the sort of things that need to be vetted in peer review and they have not yet been I understand he thinks he has is justified in it. I would like other people, not the person who made up the method, to say this too. Fair enough. Gotcha. All right. All right. Guys, we got our first super chat in David Senate. So. That's, uh, <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't I, I don't think it counts. Yeah. It I don't, wasn't I don't, a super chat. It was a super sticker. Was a super to show sticker. Everybody how to do it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right, our next. So, guys, we have five questions left. Uh, the majority of them are for Jordan, and so I'm going to go a little bit out of line uh, here or out of order. Uh, Gur asks, "Faith unaltered." Question for both: If the shroud of Torin was proved to be coming from Jesus, what does that prove exactly? Dale, I'll let you go first, and then Jordan, if you want to follow up. Um. So, just in and of itself, that it came from Jesus. Um. I mean, I think that's remarkable. I mean, one of just from a historical perspective, one of the most important figures in human history and that sort of thing. Um, I, I think I could arg make an argument for a miracle based on the circumstances, but I would need to include additional things. So, yeah, really for me, this is what I was kind of saying is that the dating is not where it's at for me. I care more about the scientific properties or attributes what i call these minimal relevant features of the shroud images and that's what i base my argument that it's a miracle on uh it's not so much that it belongs to jesus i i it's clear it clearly is meant to represent jesus of the gospels that everyone agrees whether you think it's an artwork or whatever it's meant to be jesus of the gospels it's got the crown of thorns the wound in the side you know all that good stuff um so that's enough to prove a miracle to me whether or not it actually wrapped around the historical Jesus or not. So, Okay. Jordan? Well, if we could definitively prove that this wrapped around the historical Jesus, that might finally shut up the mythicists, and so he wouldn't have to he deal with them anymore. And that alone... You know what? Honestly, if I could pick any result, that would be the result I could pick just so Richard Carrier would shut up. That would be great. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Brilliant. Okay, yeah. So I'm going to devote all my time to that now. To, okay. 
All right, guys. Um, so the next question is from Joe. Does Jordan have an issue with the fact that the C14 raw data was not released early on and was only released in 2017 because of the FOIA request? Begs the question, what were they trying to hide? So I don't have a good feel for how common it is to release the raw data. I don't know. But um, I don't think we need to like go to any weird conspiracy theory to say like why they would have hit it. Scientists are people. They don't like being embarrassed. Nobody likes to say like, oh man, I was very publicly wrong. You know? <laughs> so like, I think that's just all you need to hypothesize for like, why didn't they want to say it? I don't know. I'm not in their heads. I don't know why. Yeah. Maybe they just didn't feel like it, but like a plausible explanation would be like, boy, howdy, it sure would be suck if every single person on the planet knew how demonstrably wrong I was. <laughs> not wrong that it was not first century, just wrong that it, my dating methods were wrong. Right. Dell. Yeah, so uh, also in the first place, I just want to point out Joe Marino. Uh, thanks for listening. He is uh, one of the shroud experts in the world. He invented the invisible reweave hypothesis. So this is, yeah. this is not just a nobody. So um, yeah, in, in terms of his question, I do think that um, I disagree with Jordan. I think we do make something out of it. I, I think this is if we flip if the shoe was on the other foot and, and we found out pro shroud scientists were hiding this, I do believe that most atheists would automatically kind of what see you guys are hiding you have this motivation to fudge the data and stuff like that so i do think on this end what was they were fudging the data why why would they eliminate these four outliers well it's because by doing that that's the only way they could get this 95 percent degree of confidence and i know jordan might not know about the goings on but joe marino has a great book about the politics behind the carbon 14 dating and this has been confirmed by them there, there was Basically, AMS carbon dating was competing with two other new carbon-14 dating methods at the time. It was by dating the shroud that it became established in the scientific community and made it famous and stuff like that. Whereas beforehand, it it was kind of nebulous and stuff like that because it was competing with these other methods. So I think that there was a motivation. I do believe that they probably fudged the data for the purpose of that's the only way they could claim this 95% degree of certainty. And in fact... One of the carbon 14 scientists in the paper in nature said that they should not publish this 95 percent degree of confidence because it's not substantiated by the scientific method they nature published it anyways against his this the the expert himself recommending not to publish it so i think there's something a little bit weird going on i mean p hacking is a is a known problem in the scientific community and if it's not 95%, nobody wants to hear it. doesn't matter that there's other confidence intervals. Like 90% is also a confidence interval. That's just not as good a confidence interval as 95, but it's 95 or GTFO. So like, <laughs> like I, I mean, I, I think it's like, I, I would not be surprised to learn that it was like, oh man, it's 94%. Should it be Boston? It was 95. You know, like, like <laughs> I, scientists are human. They're flawed people just like yeah. we are. And so like, do I think that demonstrably the results are flawed? Absolutely they're flawed. Are they flawed enough for it to be first century? I don't think so, but I, I totally agree they were flawed. Cool. Right on. All right. Two two more questions after this one. Um, so Teddy asks, how have C14 dates yielded future dates? Incompetent somewhere or something is not quite as firm as to how reliable C14 testing is. So the question, how have C14 dates yielded future dates? Jordan? Have they? I mean... I, I'm not aware of one. 
Okay. Do you, are you aware of one, Dale? Yeah, well, she she's talking about like examples that young Earth creationists like Kent Hovind will bring, where they carbon date snails and they date to the future. They their dating is way off. They or don't. Something like that. They don't date to the future. They date to the distant past. Um, okay. Was well, is okay. I think she was citing a specific example um, where one comes from the future. It doesn't matter. The the question here is about Ken. Car it is a fact that even Jordan admits. Everyone admits that carbon 14 dates are way off at times right and and that's where they usually comes in with contamination of some sort like carbon 14 is contaminated in or something like that or it's leaked out um in these snails examples and that's why we get off dates kind of thing so um can i competence i, I don't know that there's mm. any, it's it's just a matter of working out like how do we detect when there's contamination or not and stuff like that right so yeah. Would, would something similar, just out of curiosity, and Jordan, I'll let you answer this too. Um, what, so what comes to my mind is whenever I was researching like the Young Earth, Old Earth series that we did uh, a few months back, that we have rocks, um, volcanic rock, that we know when, when these rocks were formed, they've been carbon-14 dated to sometimes even... Uh, I'll, I'll be nice, 10,000 to 100,000 years uh, in the distant past, right? Is that similar to what Teddy's talking about here? Or yeah. So I don't okay. know that those were carbon-14 data. There are other sources okay. of radiometric dating. And usually, I think for the lava rocks, the one that they usually use for those is uh, potassium-argon dating okay. Um, okay. or argon-argon dating. So what's going on there? Uh, it's young Earth creationism. Well, that used to be young Earth creationists. So... Uh, it is true that you can take a rock from like Mount St. Helens is the one they love to do. Right. And uh, it's a rock. We know when this rock was formed and we date it and we potassium argon date it and we get a date 10,000 years ago or whatever it is. Right. So it's wrong. That is kind of like you have a truck scale and you sprinkle some salt on it and it gives you a weight of 0.1 kilograms. Oh, my goodness. This truck sale is useless. We should just throw it out. No, of course not. What's happened is you've used it way outside the bounds of where you would expect it to be accurate. There's, uh, they're potassium argon dating. You're measuring the um, potassium 40 decays into argon, and argon is a gas. And so the assumption in the model is that the, it all degasses before it crystallizes. You've tr and then at that point, all the gas accumulates. But that's never completely true. You, you are likely to capture some amount of gas uh, but that it, that gives you a static amount of air. So let's say it's a hundred thousand years worth of air. Well, that matters a lot if your car if your sample is from the seventies. It doesn't matter at all if your sample is five hundred million years old. Mm -hmm. So like, it's you just have to use the right dating method for the. For Not the only that, but if uh, heart shaped stones, they used to be uh, um, hearts. Hearts, yeah, yeah. That uh, that he's referencing a debate I did <laughs> with sorry, Sarah, I just have Guts to. at Gibbon with a guy, a mudflood <laughs> guy who believes that every shit rock that looks vaguely like a heart is in fact a heart. And you know that island off the coast of Italy that looks like a dolphin? Yeah, totally was a dolphin. <laughs> so he just thinks they like... I'm going to leave that one there. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's funny. So really? Like this dude... Like dude, you guys I'm are sorry. being serious. I, I, poor Jordan. Poor Jordan. I awesome. held it together as hard as I could. <laughs> if you would like, though, if you would like me to come on, or I actually know a guy who does radiometric dating, like as part of like his job. Uh -huh. If you would like uh, to me, or I can probe him with some questions on radiometric dating. I, I love talking about radiation, anything related. So happy I think that, that would be fun.
That'd be really fun. Okay. So we have two more questions left. And the first one I'm going to ask isn't really, it doesn't have really anything to do with uh, the shroud. And you'll see why I saved the last question for last. And so Otangelo asks Jordan, are you also a skeptic that naturalism is true? Uh, it's a good question. I am not a philosophical naturalist. So I don't um, think. I don't say a priori, there cannot be anything supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, the way I would view it is more like the natural. So we all agree that we live in a world with a natural component. Things usually follow the laws of nature when nothing is monkeying with them. Nah. We, no, I'm just kidding. We, <laughs> we disagree on the extent to which something is monkeying with them. I say zero. You say something not zero. Sure. But we agree that we live in a natural world to some degree, right? Yeah. Now, so I would say, okay, that's where we start. And then... Uh, the theist wants to add a supernatural layer onto that. And I would say, okay, if you want me to believe there's a supernatural, that's what I need evidence for. So I, it, 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 am I a skeptic that naturalism is true? I'm not a skeptic that the natural world exists because I can see it with my eyeballs, right? Yeah. Right on, right on. All righty. Uh, so well, in the you're last... not going to ask me to speak for well, you. Well, know you know what, Dell? I'm sorry. <laughs> I've, I've been off on you tonight. I, I, I apologize, Dell. Uh, go ahead. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I'm just going to repeat and, and refer to Jordan. I think he answered it quite well. Just be aware that he was lying the whole time. He, he is <laughs> metaphysical naturalist for sure. <laughs> and you would know. You would know better than I would. <laughs> All right. And the last question, where can we find the debaters? Are they on YouTube, Twitter, or et cetera? So Jordan, shameless plug. Dale, shameless plug. Jordan, go ahead. Sure. I run the Reason to Doubt uh, podcast if you or YouTube channel. Uh, if you Reason to Doubt, just like it's spelled. If you find a really cool hip-hop channel, that is not us. Keep going. It's the <laughs> one with the bow tie and the guy in glasses. Uh, we release every Thursday uh, on various topics. So you can find us, uh, and I'm sure the boys will link to both of our stuff on on twitter i am press x underscore to doubt um that's just me ranting and raving on twitter if you want to hear that can you send david those links and david can you throw them in the description i'll put them in the them? private chat okay perfect perfect uh just just out of curiosity before uh dale uh you give your shameless plug so who stole from who jordan who's which one the reason to doubt uh name Oh, with the hip-hop guys? Did you steal from the hip-hop guys? Or did they steal from you? So, so we didn't know that this is just Convergent Evolution. We didn't yeah. know that anybody else had this name until okay. we'd already been like publishing for a little while because they are mostly on YouTube, and we didn't do YouTube at first. The okay. way we got our name was we were both in the Army, Jared and I, and we yeah. were like, we should do a skeptic channel. What should we call it? Well, there's two of us, and we doubt things. So reason to doubt. There you go. Okay. And uh, yeah, so pure coincidence. So nothing with reason to believe then. No, that was another that came up when I talked to Jess Waring. That was another question he had. And just another you know, okay. it was so funny. I remember when you were discussing about you and Jared actually doing the podcast. Like you hadn't decided whether you're gonna do it. You said it was coming in the near future. And I was like, well, what are you gonna call it? And you're like, Oh, we're thinking about reasons to doubt. I was like, that, that that's a perfect name. I didn't even know you're you were borrowing from anybody. <laughs> we weren't so, just uh, exactly great lines and all that. It just yeah. Uh, yeah. and since I haven't said it yet. This is a great conversation. You are an excellent interlocutor. Yeah. And while I don't agree with uh, your content, or I don't agree with your conclusions, the content is very informative. So if people want to hear about Shadow Tournament from a believer's point of view, your channel is an excellent source. And awesome. Dale, go ahead, brother. Tell people where they can find that channel. Yeah, so so as Jordan mentioned, I, so I'm the host of Real Seekers on YouTube. 
um, or Real Seeker Ministries. If you uh, find my blog, it's um, uh, sorry, I'm horrible at plugging myself, but uh, it's hang on one second. Real Real Seeker Singular Ministries WordPress.com, uh, and that's my blog site. So I post up all my sources, scholarly papers. I'll be doing the same for this debate. Uh, so you can check that out and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, Real Seekers on YouTube or Rumble video. And I, yeah, I have a bunch of shows on various topics and that sort of thing. But lately, a lot focused on the Shroud of Trend specifically. So yeah, look for that. Right on, right on. I'm copying and pasting these links that Jordan just sent. David, what did you think? So, brother, we're at the closing remarks. It's time for our final comments. Go ahead, bro. What, Man, you brother, think? you know, I am, I mean, this is such a great discussion. I knew these guys would be stellar. You know, um, I have confidence in both of them. Um, yeah. I mean, Jordan showed me such graciousness when we first got together and my failures. So. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, you know, it, it's funny because we actually met at my house, you know, in my unfinished basement that was undergoing renovation and which still undergoing renovation because it never seems like you get the flooding to stop sometimes but uh yeah there uh, you know and dale you know ever since we hooked up man it's been it's been a great ride we've been able to talk you've been able to help me with my papers and and you know walk me through some stuff in my masters and stuff like that so I appreciate both of you and I know you guys love to discuss these type of things so of course you guys are always welcome back, Dale. You're part of the show now, so uh, you can't get rid of me here. But Jordan, you know that you're always welcome here. And if you ever have anything you want to put out, you know, uh, we're here to host it. So, um, but anyways, other than that, guys, I mean, uh, I'm looking forward to the next couple weeks off. I mean, I will be taking the next couple weeks off because it is me and the wife's uh, 10, 10 year anniversary. So we got to do something special. So we're actually going to a bed and breakfast uh, in closer to Jordan's area. We're actually going to be doing it uh, around there and hitting one of the wine trails down there. And since we've been making wine, uh, we want to taste other Virginia local wineries. So it's hard uh, for me to be happy for you because while you're gone, you have me filling in with shows. Uh, well, yeah, you got Tyler. I mean, Tyler can help was, you. But actually, you said... me and Tyler are going to meet here within the next couple of days to discuss our documentary. And then we're going to pass on what we need you right. guys to do. So, uh, okay. but yeah, uh, it's going to be a good break. Uh, but other than that, guys, I love this type of stuff. I love these topics. I love yeah. our guests. I love Tyler. I love the fellowship that, that we've created. And again, I mean, I can't ask for anything better. So Tyler, I'll let, let you take it away, man. I really like how you worded that last part, David, is that we're going to be handing down the traditions to Dale. And so... <laughs> 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 not solo scriptura you cannot just find this stuff written down guys and so and so we will be handing down those oral traditions to dale and and the team to take on the faith and altar thing but yes i enjoyed this uh a conversation i love jordan it's been just an honor and a pleasure getting to know you over the past you know months now i mean i remember the first time we interacted uh i came on as a guest on pora and we did the kind of topsy-turvy uh atheist and christian uh you guys hosted it was guest host month for uh, pora and so i that was the first time i interacted with you man and it's been just an honor and a pleasure 
uh, doing these shows with you and getting to know you over these, like I said, these last few months, man. So I love you, bro. And it's it's great. I agree. I am awesome. You are. You are very awesome. And I'm going to get that bow tie one of these days. (laughs) And so Dale, and, and again, brother, like ever since we've met and ever since you've been on board, we've had our private conversations off of air. And I feel like we've just grown so much, not only spiritually, but in our friendship. And so I thank God for it every day that I am friends with you and, and colleagues, uh, working together to, to do this, David, you know, you're you. And so there's nothing much more I can say there. No, I'm just kidding. I'm a dirty heretic, but, but guys, it has been a blast. And so I, I encourage all of our listeners go check out reason to doubt, go check out real seekers, come to your own conclusions. The thing we seem to lack in this society that we find ourselves in is critical thinking. We need more critical thinking happening every single day. And that's on topics we like. That's even on topics we don't care to get involved in. We need to critically think more. And so I'm a big advocate of putting that into practical uh, practice. I mean, I mean, let's let's be more critical thinkers on these subjects uh, whenever it comes to these topics that that we love and we hold dear to our hearts. And so I want to thank our audience again. We've hit the thousand subscriber mark. We could not have done it without you. And if you would like to continue furthering um, our our ministry, uh, please prayerfully consider uh, donating. It does take money uh, to upgrade equipment. It does take money to advertise. Um, unfortunately, we live in that world. Uh, where where we have to have money to do those. And so if you would like to do that, uh, we want to start a Patreon eventually. We do not have one up right now. And so if you would like to help fund our channel, uh, email me again, faithunaltered at gmail.com, and I can give you a link to do that with. But until next time, y'all, we've got some good stuff coming up this month. uh, David mentioned the documentary. We are working on a gospel documentary. So the impact of the gospel for the last 2000 years of church history. Uh, We want to bring that to light in a way that has not been done before. And I think we're on the road to doing that. And so I'm excited to see that finally come to fruition and begin to be uh, start being produced. And so I'm excited for that. And I mean, that's really about it. That's all I've got. And until next time, stick around and because we've got a lot more content coming for you all. And so again, thank you to our debaters. David, thank you so much for hosting. I've been, I've enjoyed this just phenomenally. And until next time, good night, God bless and stay like Christ.